is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-journalistic podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we are discussing quite a different film. Uh, of course, we'll be talking about The Beaver, which is a 2011 dramedy? Or, as The Beaver would put it, I'm The Beaver. Would you call it a dramedy, Lawson? I think it's trying to be. I think I just go I think more it's in the just dra- a drama. I just think it's yeah. a sad movie. It's less of a comedy. It's more like, oh no, this man is actually dissociating and he's very ill. I think it thinks it's a dramedy, but I'd probably we can just, get into that. I'd probably just say drama at this point. Uh, it's not funny enough. No. Uh, but before we get into that, we've got a couple of things that we need to watch. We've been sitting on something that we did see uh, last week. Yes, uh, we had a pretty long what we've been watching section last week, um, and so we decided to push Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 to this week, which we all went and saw together in the cinemas. It's an action film directed by Christopher McQuarrie. It's based on the TV series Mission Impossible, created by Bruce Geller, and it follows secret agent Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, and his team, who are forced to, yet again, go rogue, uh, and this time they're, fa- they're facing a, uh, an AI that has gained sentience called the Entity. And it is too dangerous for any government to control or any entity or any organization to control. And there are a lot of factions vying for it, including the Entity itself, it, which is trying to get a hold of the shutdown key that basically has the opportunity to end it if the holder wants to. And you've got to find these two parts to this key and so Ethan heads off to find them and that leads him to a thief named Grace played by Hayley Atwell who gets swept up in everything and he's also uh, pursued by the entity's own emissary Gabriel played by Asai Morales who has a connection to Ethan from the distant past. So uh, why don't you start us off Sean what did you think of this? Yeah I, I quite liked this. I like it a little bit less than Fallout because Fallout took a lot of quite massive swings and i appreciated that a lot but everything that you want from a mission impossible movie is here interesting stunts a car chase that harkens to back to all of the car chases in the franchise tom cruise runs a lot he's very good at sprinting and you just have to kind of laugh at some of the opportunities that they give him like he's running atop this airport and the the moment he starts sprinting i thought to myself jesus christ is this a fetish for him or something? Because it's in every movie, but... This has a little bit more in common with Fast and the Furious than it does previous Mission Impossible films. It's about sort of a slightly more sci-fi-ish idea than previous Mission Impossibles have. That this is an AI that's reached sentience. And that's sort of new for the franchise. And it has a car chase in exactly the same city as the most recent Fast and the Furious with a giant armored car plowing its way down exactly the same set of stairs that one does in that Fast and the Furious film. I enjoy all of the introduced characters. Carrie Elwes is here. Uh, Isai Morales and Hayley Atwell do a really good job. The returning cast do a good job as well. Of course, obviously Tom Cruise Uh, will die on the set of one of these movies, eventually. It's just the facts. Uh, Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames show up. Uh, 
But I feel like at some point, one of these characters has to die to give some more stakes. But we'll see how it goes, because this is just the first part of a two-part film. And it feels like it. Um, I walked out of this feeling pretty much the same as I did out of Fast X. Um, mainly it is that first part of a two-parter thing. Um, obviously, it's Mission Impossible, which is a lot smarter, frankly, than the Fast and the Furious franchise. Um, but there is something that could be said for how dumb Fast and the Furious is compared to Mission Impossible. I Part of me doesn't think this needed to be a two-parter, if I'm going to be completely honest. They spend a lot of time in this uh, Dead Reckoning Part 1 just talking about the entity, going, oh, nobody should have it, it's the most powerful thing. The world is changing, Ethan, didn't you know? Everything's gone digital now. As if we hadn't been hearing that exact same thing in espionage films over the past ten years. That's not a new concept to the Didn't audience. Bond kind of have this with sort of like a weird world council in Spectre. Oh, Bond has been leaning, like they've been hammering that whole analog in a digital age thing since at least Skyfall. Like yeah, yeah, it's this been is every, not, every one of them. This is not a new concept for spy stuff. And it's only crystallized by the idea of the entity as an AI. It has a personality. It has a personality, and it's fighting for itself, which mm. is the most interesting thing. It is its own greatest advocate, uh, and it just wants to survive, which means it'll do whatever it takes, much like Ethan will do, as as long as he can get the job done. Um, again, this is another one of those Mission Impossible movies where they go, like, and here's one of the other comparisons between uh, Fast and the Furious and the Mission Impossible franchise. In Fast and the Furious, it is family. In Mission Impossible, it is the team. Which is code for family. Which is code for family. Uh, same basic idea. They even, don't they even have a character say, that's the thing, Ethan, how do you choose which people you save? Son of a bitch, that happened in... That happens in mm. both. It has some crazy killer guy from back in the main dude's past, both who are martial threats to the main character, and both who say... Who do you? How do you choose who to save? Yeah. Um. S. Morales is quite good here as Gabriel, but I really get the feeling we're not getting everything from him just yet. Uh, we're gonna get a better explanation of who the hell he actually is <laughs> in Dead Reckoning Part Two, instead of just some shadowy dude from before the movies even started. Uh. But you could tell that Ethan is afraid of him, yeah. like legitimately terrified of this guy. In a way that he hasn't been before. Uh, so much so that Ving Rhames is like, are you okay? Um, and that bike stunt. Fantastic. Yeah, it's good. Uh, is it as impressive as some of his other stunts? I think so. I think there's a lot of stuff that could have gone drastically yes, wrong. Obviously. On the day of. See, here's the thing, though. Think back to the other stunts. I mean, the I think that the one that... The big one, the one that they've never been able to top and probably won't, is... Being on the side of the plane as it took off, yeah, because that's just insane. Yeah, um, it's madness. It's more yeah. of a challenge and a danger than is necessary. Yeah. Like with the the, like, the aero drop, that's not like people do that. Yeah. yeah, but he didn't really do that sort of stuff in one, two, and three. I mean, he did yeah. stunts, but he didn't do like a big insane thing. The fourth one was him on the side of the um the building, yeah. um, and you know that's 
I mean, I think Tom Cruise himself said in the special features of that movie, uh, you know, there's very little difference between being on the side of a six-foot building and being on the side of a 60-foot building. You just The end result, if it goes wrong, is going to be the same. You just have more time to think about it on the way down. Yeah. But Which what begs was... the question, why put yourself in that situation in the first place, yeah. Tom? It's for the art, man. But I know. Fallout was the um, the helicopter stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And the air um, the low altitude fall. jump, yeah. Um, I think I think it fits in there because I really think you the stunt things, the signature stunt things, only really came in in five, yeah. six, and this. Yeah. And it was like before the movie came out, they did this whole part of the promotional material where we saw the behind the scenes of that. Yeah. And it's really impressive how they pulled it off. Like it's just real. It's great stuff. Yeah. Um. And- <laughs> I love how that particular moment ends. It just had me thinking. Oh yeah, the, you're the a lunatic. The comedy spot there is pretty great. Um, and also how they get us to the point of the the necessity the necessity of, it, yeah. of the jump. That is fun. That's also fun. How they have to try and justify each of these massive stunts. Uh, really, everyone's firing on all cylinders. Uh, Kerry Elwes is there, which is nice. It's always fun. I guess when he out. pops up and stuff, um, and we also get a character who's back from the like the first movie, uh, Critchland or something like that. Uh yeah, H- Henry Cherney is back. Yeah, yeah, which was a real blast from the past. Yeah, which was cool to see, honestly. And we also get like the Kittridge. Kittridge, yeah. And we also get a slight cameo from Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible Two hair in those uh, <laughs> flashbacks. Um, I was actually uh, thinking of the Vanessa Kirby character. She was in Fallout. Yeah, from Fallout. Like, she's back here too, and that's really neat. Yeah. Um, But no, like, obviously, this is the first part of a two-parter, so you really can't judge it that harshly. Um, I'm just interested to see how they actually wrap this whole thing up. Because they do end the movie with some stakes, I have to say. So, I'm excited for where it goes in the future. Not as good as Fallout, though. Um, it's clear to me from listening to you guys that I liked this movie a lot more than you did. I really, really loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I think it competes with Fallout easily. Um, I think it's just a really confident action movie mm. in a way that there's. It's just it knows what it wants to do. It knows how to do it, and it does it. And there's just something so satisfying about that. And um, I actually found the the split into two movies. To and we'll see how this ends in the second part. But I found this this opening part to actually benefit from that. It felt like it was a little more relaxed. There wasn't so much dashing and running and things, and it felt like it was able to expand on its ideas and and yeah, take, it does get take to breathe all the a bit. time. It, yeah, exactly. It had time to breathe in a way that some of the others didn't. Spend more time with the characters too. It flows really smoothly as well. I think it plays into the MI mythology more than some of the previous ones does, again, bringing Kittredge back, but also this sort of hint at Ethan's past that we're almost assuredly going to learn a lot more about in the second movie. Um, I do think it scrambles a little to establish an a the, the concept of the AI. I mean, mm. that's all really done in a fairly clunky exposition scene with... <laughs> it is so blunt, man. It's basically just a, um, a room full of character actors, uh 
speaking in turn, explaining the situation to Carrie Elwes. Um, it's actually it's actually pretty funny at that point because you're just sitting there and you got these people being like, "Well, Ethan Hunt has gone rogue." It's like he goes rogue all the time, and to the point where it's not even technically going rogue anymore. It's just behavior. I think the only thing he hasn't gone rogue in was two. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not like he's gone rogue. It's just he has barely worked for us in the past. <laughs> he's an independent contractor who does shit his own way. Yeah. Um, I think that the AI thing is cool, though. I think that it's a, <clears throat> an interesting way in into what feels almost like kind of a commentary on movies. And who knows when this whole thing came about. <laughs> Because they're they're pretty f- they pretty famously Macquarie and Cruz make up the story as they go along while they're filming. They've been um, like doing they, that since Fallout. They've been right? doing that since before Fallout. They've been doing that since Rogue Nation. Ah, uh, yeah, that's um, right. Because they build it around the stunts. Yeah, but they, you, you know, you do wonder when in the process the story came together in this exact way. Because I know we were talking when we left. Asai Morales has all of this backstory with Ethan Hunt, but he was originally going to be played by Nicholas Holt, and you just simply couldn't with Nicholas Holt because mm. he's too young a man. Mm. So clearly that character changed, and that, that character only changed after they'd already filmed like a big chunk of it before the pandemic hit. That was mm. why Nicholas Holt had to drop out, was because after the pandemic delay, he had to go and film The Great. So... Clearly, this was not set while they were filming it. And you do wonder how close to recent technological developments in the real world that AI thing started to cohere. But um, it feels prescient. Um, It's got some great moments with the AI, one in particular that is quite tantalizing for what it Hmm. could do in the next movie and where it could take the story. I mean, that cold open is very good. Yeah, but it, it... teases more to come and i really liked the character of gabriel i think that morales Mm. is fantastic he he's got he's got a weird sense of being this prophet of this entity almost yeah kind of but there's there's Mm. something just very calm about him like that's the thing that got me more than anything he's not he knows that it's going to go okay for him yeah he's not shouting or cackling it's just a very sort of calm and measured approach that he takes yeah, to that the ai has told him all of the possible ways that situations yeah. can end and like he he's just got very sh- calmly as if he's read the entire script as his character and been like yep well this is just what's gonna happen like so. he makes predictions and shit yeah he I'm times things down to the minute and it's, it's he also has this cold. darkness to him he's clearly a knife person he's clearly someone who takes joy in getting up close and personal Mm. and hurting people yeah it does have the usual mi bugbear of doing all of the character work off screen like (laughs) i'm i'm thinking of like the pretty clear progression in relationship that tom cruise's character and rebecca ferguson's character have had between fallout and this um because they needed to work on some shit after fallout yeah i would have liked to just see more of that frankly and i mean Mm. For as much as they do the whole, you know, the team thing, the team is important thing, they've only really cohered the team in the last few movies. I mean, there's all of these forgotten people from the first, like, four Mission Impossible movies who we've just never heard from again. Um, But uh, there is one choice with a character that they make that I'm not thrilled about. 
Um, but I'm withholding judgment because I'm not convinced it's going to stick. So, <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, I already texted you guys about it, but yeah. um, uh, the we'll see where that goes. But um, Cruz is doing really good work. He he seems to be trying to be a little darker and more intense. Mm. I'm not a little sure more it, internal. Yeah, but I'm not sure it works though. I mean, mm. that, this is the thing. They need Gabriel. Um, alive because he's their link to the the machine. Yeah, he knows what it opens. And there's supposed to be this tension that Ethan might snap and kill him because he's got all this dark history with him. And I just don't buy it because Mm. Ethan Hunt is just... People have killed people close to Ethan and he's never had that sort of, like, talking to before. Mm. It is interesting, the idea that it's our main character has a dark past that we didn't quite fully understand. It makes you wonder if he beat someone to blindness with a tire iron or something. See, I think you guys are really going all in on this Fast and Furious comparison in a way that is... I just think it's fun! It's incredibly strained. It's not really supported by the movie, other than that they do a set piece involving a car chase in the same location. And I also think that some of the criticisms that you guys were levying, like the analog and digital thing, they don't go on about it nearly as much as you suggest they do. Or that, like you said, they spend a lot of time talking about how oh the old the old spy no, worlds no, no. are like what I was that's saying is way more of a Bond thing. Like we got so much more of that in Skyfall. Okay, and but Spectre what I was trying to say is they spend a lot of time talking up the AI. They repeat themselves a lot about the AI. Is what I was trying to get at. I'm not sure they do. I mean, there's there's a couple of scenes where they go into it, but I think that it's usually punctuated by a change in their knowledge of the AI or a change in their relationship to it. There's always something new to unpack. But uh, I do think that there's an excellent supporting cast here. Henry Cherney is back and he's knocking it out of the park. Uh, he's just doing real great, like, scummy mid-level American security agency bureaucrat. Yeah, bureaucrat um, shit. Also with a dash of sick of this shit. Yeah. <laughs> Just sprinkled there. Uh, and the action and the set pieces are phenomenal. It picks mm. an idea, often simple, and it just takes it to its yeah. end point. And, and that changes things up. Like one of the yeah. one of the ones is the, the car chase um, is with Ethan and... Uh, Hayley Atwell are handcuffed to each other, yeah. but the handcuff puts it so that Ethan can't comfortably be on the driver's side of the car. So and it turns out Ethan's spy car is a mini. Yeah, so they're like trying. So it's this constant like struggle between how to manipulate, how to do mm. the steering and everything, and them sort of swapping places in the cars because they're totally uh, they're totally bound. But y- you can really tell. Um, I I think one of the other things that is something that Mission Impossible's had for a while now that I really appreciate, but I really appreciated it this time um, because it's just been so long since... uh, So long since the last Mission Impossible movie and with so many CGI-heavy movies between that you really can't tell what's real and what isn't in Mm. terms of the green screen angle. Mm. Like, there are some obvious ones because you're never going to, like, they're never destroy, gonna do that. Destroy something that massive on in real life. But like Or just put the, people like, in like such specific danger. Yeah. Well that well that's just the thing. Tom Cruise is driving a motorcycle off a cliff in this movie. How the hell do I know what 
he won't do. Because they're not going to put S.A. Morales in that kind of danger. <laughs> yeah, that's... I don't... T- T- Tom Cruise is willing to put himself in Tom these Cruise situations. Will do it. When it's a scene of Tom Cruise and, and other person? actors, mm. they're less willing to, you know, get thrown out of, you know, a moving car. Or some shit are. like that. Than Tom Cruise is, yeah. Oh, we forgot to talk about one person. Uh, Pom Clementeff is in this. Yep, making and very little fantastic. impact. Okay, we'll have to agree to disagree on that one. I don't think she's got a problem, but I felt like she entered the movie, left the movie. I learned nothing about that character. Um, it was she was purely functional, and then she went away again. I guess I just enjoyed like the vibe of the character. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I also went and saw another movie in the cinemas that I have to talk about. It is Meg 2, The Trench. I saw in the trailers there's a giant octopus. Yes. I don't know if it's an octopus or a squid. I'm not a... Is it a squid? I don't know. I'm not up to date enough on my underwater biology. Does it have an elongated body? I don't know, Harley. Like, I don't know how elongated a squid's body is compared to an octopus. Does it have a round body? Bulbous head? I love that you keep talking about this and neither of you have gone to the number of legs. How many legs does it have? I don't know. I wasn't paying that close attention. It's all in the water. It's like a bunch of people getting eaten by this thing. Anyways, it's directed by Ben Wheatley um, and uh, it picks up. Which I was shocked by. It picks up in the aftermath of uh, the first movie. Well, years later, actually, Jason Statham and co. I'm not going to bother mentioning anyone's names because they're completely irrelevant. Um, But they're basically eco-warriors now, protecting the world's oceans and making sure that the Megs stay down in that trench that they were were found in in the last movie. But this uh, infiltration into their organization... uh, prompts an act of sabotage that leaves them stranded at the bottom of the trench uh, where they discover an illicit mining operation uh, trying to get rare earth minerals. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, it's weird. They've left this a while. Like I, I, That first movie made a lot of money, like more than you'd think that it did considering the amount of cultural mm. impact it's had. What year did it come out? 2018. So it's been straight up half a decade. And admittedly, a big chunk of that was COVID. So mm. who knows, in the absence of COVID, what uh, what they would have done. But this made the first one made over half a billion dollars. So um, they they really didn't start the, um, the development of the sequel until into 2019, 2020. They left it a while, I think. More than you'd expect them, that they would. But... Um, it's not as good as the first movie. I hesitate to say the first movie was good, but it was extremely entertaining. Um, yeah. They they do these sort of vague attempts at character development. Jason Statham is looking after the little girl from the first movie because her mother got killed in the first movie. But I don't know why, because her uncle is literally right there as a new character, and yet he's the father to this kid, while the uncle like works in the same facility. <laughs> um, Statham, baby. They do all this, like, eco-warrior stuff. I don't think it, it fits. Like, again, they were just kind of underwater divers in the first movie, scientists people, um, aquatic people, and now they're, like, Jason Statham's on spy missions, infiltrating places and stopping bad guys and stuff. Um, Punching sharks in the head. But none of it matters, because this is a movie about giant prehistoric sharks, and that does the job. 
Uh, all of the shark stuff is good. All of the octopus stuff is good. The underwater, like, monstrosity stuff, that's all good fun. Um, the corporate espionage angle just doesn't work. I, I do not care about... It doesn't work in Jurassic Park and it doesn't work here. I do not care about some people in suits, illegal plan to mine rare earth minerals and mm. sell it on the black market. I don't care. There are giant sharks. Why should I possibly care about the, what these people are doing? Yeah, we um, have more immediate concerns. Maybe if they were sharks in suits that were trying to mine rare earth minerals. Um, but it's just a distraction. It, it's too much of a distraction. It actually hurts the pace of the movie. Um, and they spend a long period too long a period, stranded down at the bottom of the trench in this mining facility. It slows things down way too much. Um, but the second half of the film really kicks into high gear. When you watch the trailer, that's where most of the footage is from, is the second half of the movie. Um, the, the sort of, it's, it's almost like Piranha 3D with the spring mm. spring break thing that all the piranhas That's kind find. of the vibe I got. Yeah. Um, that's, it's straight up a place called Fun Island. And um, and uh, they second half of the movie is basically this one big set piece on Fun Island. Not uh, having fun is illegal. Fun is mandatory on Fun Island. Uh, uh, and one of the things, d- one of the things in the trailer that gets to me is they say this is the biggest Meg we've ever seen. It's like, well, it's the same thing Tom Cruise said. At some point, the size becomes irrelevant. It's a yeah, giant. I will shock. say. I thought that was a bit ridiculous in the trailer too, but given the world that they posit, that like just straight up, there are a lot of Megs down there now, and they've been studying the place for quite a while. Um, More Megs is a bigger concern than one of exorbitant size. Um, but when they uh, they turn up at Fun Island, they do this great gag that where I'm, <laughs> you might remember that in the first uh, the first. Meg movie, there was like this little fluffy dog that was being carried around by this woman on holiday. Well, the same woman and the same dog are at Fun Island. (laughs) (laughs) And that's probably my favourite part of the whole movie. (laughs) That's got to be just some bad luck. Um, Because like, even before the the attack starts, someone mentions the word shark and the dog like freaks out. (laughs) (laughs) The dog has some legitimate trauma. Yeah. Um, but there are some decent performances. Statham seems uh, older in this movie than he seemed in a lot of the other movies I've seen him in recently. Um, and it suits him. He's he's sort of coming into this sort of, I don't know, it's given him a, a kind of stature in a way that I think mm. has given him a little more seriousness and maturity to his performance. Um, like, but- well, the, th- the thing is, he is also getting older. At, at some point, he's going to have to slow down. It's not any time soon, but he might want to consider that, you know? How much, how old he is right now. He's 56. Yeah, that's that's getting up there. We didn't mention, but Tom Cruise is straight up 60 years old now. Yeah. Like, that's, he's, he's like a year and a half younger than my mother. And my mother, I don't think, would do nearly as well driving motorcycles off of cliffs. Um, I wouldn't think so. Wouldn't think so. But Tom Cruise is a madman, and oh, he's sixty-one now. I'm sorry. Okay, here's my here's my question for you guys: If Tom Cruise looked sixty-one and did not look like a forty-year-old, like he like he has for the last since he was forty, 
Um, yeah. But if he actually looked 61, if he had wrinkles and he had grey hair, but he was still legit doing the same stunts that he's doing, would we buy it still? It'd be more impressive, that's for sure. I Look, I'm a big fan of old people, like, getting into action <laughs> scenes. Yeah. But, like, put, put it in this perspective. Tom Cruise is now older than Ian McKellen was when he filmed the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. Get out. Re- really? Yes. Ian Jeez. McKellen was in his late 50s, like 58, 59, when they started shooting. Christ. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd buy it. Like, it'd be impressive, for sure, but it'd strain a bit. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying, imagine, like, 1999 era Ian McKellen in the Tom Cruise <laughs> role in this movie. Like, I love me some Ian McKellen, but I'm just wondering if if the only reason we still, we still buy it so much um, is that Tom Cruise is um, able to look like he's trapped in amber. Mm. That's true, yeah. But the Meg, too. How does the Meg look? Does the Meg look its age? It's decent CG. I mean, it matches the set pieces um, in of the first one in a really good way. I mean, it keeps building that stuff up and it has some more fun moments. Um, it also has a great under pressure needle drop. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a movie that frankly you you wish was a little more than this after mm. five years of putting it together. Um, but uh, it seems to have done okay. So maybe we'll get an opportunity for, to have another one. I mean, this is the problem that they're coming into, uh, that once you're out, like, there's not that many opportunities for, to do different things when it's about a giant shark attacking. Like, yeah. the shark, by definition, has to be in the water, which means that they have to be on a boat and... Well... Don't say Sharknado. No, I wasn't going to say Sharknado. We watched an entire documentary called Sharksploitation. We're not going to talk about it as part of... It's one of the things we watch because we've got a few things to talk about this week anyway. But it goes into the whole history of shark cinema and all into the cultural stuff about that and the impact shark cinema has had. Obviously, they talk about Jaws. They talk about its precursors and they talk about the films that came after they Jaws. They talk about the Meg. They talk about the Meg. And they also talk about all of those shitty little sci-fi slash asylum productions like ghost shark. So, and there's also one which is like four-headed shark where the shark is using two of its heads to drag itself along the ground towards people. So, I disagree with you Lawson. Even when we're on land, we have to be careful of land sharks. Okay. Shark movies are only good when the sharks are in the water. Anyways, thank you for that interjection. I was really just making the point that I'm not sure how how much further they can push this. Um, but I'm glad we took as long as possible to get Maybe to on that. a cruise ship. Maybe the Mega Taxi cruise ship. Yeah, but then it's just like it's then it's, it's a, a giant... cruise ship horror movie, so Yeah, but but it's the same thing. Like they've still gotta stop the shark. They're still gonna get on their jet skis or get in their boat or dive under the water. Like we'll just be doing the same thing over again. I'm mm. thinking about like four or five megs bullying the same cruise ship. Then it'd be done. Like that's the thing. If we were talking about a, a, a shark that's the size of a school bus or something, okay, we're cooking with gas now. But hmm. that's deep blue sea. That's not the Meg. <laughs> the Meg is just straight up, it will eat the bow of that ship in one bite. Okay, 
two megs then, and they fight over who gets it. Yeah, but it all ends the same way, John. It's in the water, killing a giant shark. Not it is diminishing some- returns. Not if you do something really ballsy and have the shark win, setting up a two-parter. The only thing I... Okay. The only thing is if it came upriver. I would sign mm. on for that. Going upriver, um, or in like like with Piranha 3D, where it's like some sort of underwater cave system that gets it out into the middle of oh, like... Oh, so, sort of like the Hollow Earth theory shit from Godzilla King of Monsters. <laughs> yeah. But really, I mean, it's, would, it, would it shock you to learn that this is actually based on a series of books? No. It's And they've written... I shouldn't say they. It's one guy, Steve Alton. He's written a lot of these books. Like, there are six currently published books, including... As well as a ebook prequel called Meg Origins, and I'll tell a, you what the origin of the Meg is. It's a dinosaur, and okay. a upcoming uh, sequel as well, set for release in uh, next next year or twenty twenty five. Do you think they're following the plots of those books, or do you think it's more like just the general idea? I'm not sure, but they do have the same name. So um, Meg 2, The Trench, is based on The Trench, mm. which is the second book. Uh, it doesn't look like it's keeping too close to it. Well, perhaps they can dip into some of the later books, see if they have a more interesting premise or something. I do have to see what Meg Origins is about. Oh, for God's sake. Apparently it's just like a little story about the Jason Statham character when he thought he saw the Meg years oh. before. The origin story, yeah. basically. I was kind of hoping that it would be like prehistoric Meg, like Far Cry Primal, but the Meg. Yeah. <laughs> I only have one thing from the list that I have to talk about this week, and it is a... Um, hang on, where's my notes gone? There's my notes gone. Um, it is a musical drama called Memphis. It's directed by Don Roy King. It's a pro shot of a stage musical written by Joe Tipietro. It's set in 1950s Memphis when a young white guy named Huey, played by Chad Kimball, is obsessed with uh, black music and he gets a job as a radio DJ and starts playing a lot of black music and it becomes really popular among young people, but he also falls in love with a black club singer named Felicia, played by uh, Montego Glover, and there's some tension and danger there because this is the 50s deep south and there's like a very real threat to her physical well-being for uh being in an interracial relationship so this is uh apparently loosely inspired by a real life guy um a real dj named dewey phillips who was one of the first white djs to play black music in the south um but it takes a lot of liberties as best i can tell the entire romance angle is invented um it's well-meaning, but it's predictable, and it's aged pretty poorly. Um, there's a lot of Green Book in this. There's a lot of oh, civ- civil rights through the eyes of the enlightened white guy. Or the white like guy... The help. Yeah, actually, that's probably better. The, the help is probably... Because the, the guy in Green Book's not enlightened. That's about him learning to become <laughs> enlightened, whereas this guy as like starts off enlightened. Mm. Um Actually, I haven't seen the help, so I'm just gonna have to take your word for it. <laughs> but uh, no, the help is kind of that. Yeah, because I know that there are plenty of racist white people in the help, but there's like the main white person to help, like nice, isn't she? She's nice, but she's she doesn't nice, understand but... the full. Yeah, 
that's probably that sounds that sounds yeah. like a good match then because uh, the focus is is on him when it should be on Felicia and the black community. It should be on the stuff that they have to endure, the danger that Felicia is in in pursuing a relationship with this white man. But well, it's segregation. Not, yes, it. But it's not that. It's focused on Huey instead, and that doesn't work. There's a touch of white saviour to it as well, in terms of like, oh, Huey's going to come along and get her on the radio, and she's going to have a big career, and it's all thanks to Huey. And it's just, in general, it's a little too old school in its construction and in the way that it approaches these issues. Um, But the second half gets a bit thornier. Huey has an inability to see beyond his own experiences, which becomes a plot point. It becomes a complication, an obstacle. And um, the danger that Felicia is in is emphasised, and that's not seemingly fully understood by Huey. Uh, It has kind of an attempt in that second half to deconstruct that stereotype of the cool, enlightened white guy, Mm. but it's reluctant to do it completely. And this yeah. is the problem. Um, it like so it recognizes there's a problem. Well, I'm not sure. I think it does. Well, it I I'm not sure whether it. Okay, let's put it this way. I don't think it's aware of the problem in its own perspective, but I think right. it wants to create a flawed character. I okay. don't. Th- I don't think it necessarily un- realizes that in focusing on that flawed character over the much more interesting black characters, it's actually created a problem for itself. Right. Yeah. Um. But it is so it, trying... it sort of it sort of stumbles into making the the problem more apparent. Yeah, uh, but it's not willing to actually make him as have as big a blind spots as he needs to, or actually make him as not villainous because he doesn't need to be villainous, but he needs to be an obstacle to, um, mm. as the movie goes on, and he is, but not nearly enough. Like, if you want to do this kind of deconstruction, you need to be a little more total about it, but it feels like they're not willing to alienate the audience or to challenge the audience too much, Mm. because when they cut away at the end of the play and they show all the audience standing up and clapping, it's a bunch of white people. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. Those are the people that this... And really, that comes down to the problem. That's who you get the feeling that this production is for. Uh, And uh, the writer appears to be white um he also went on to write the uh the broadway masterpiece diana the musical oh christ um i i don't think i don't think a black playwright would have pitched this story in this way um and it 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 has this very rushed and unearned ending as well um that it ends up feeling just too neat and too nice and too unchallenging because again it's too afraid to alienate anyone so it pulls it pulls back from actually making a trenchant point in favor of stitching it all up in a neat little bow so everyone can walk out happy um other than all of that stuff the plot is pleasant but it's it's very predictable there's nothing in it that you can't see coming a mile away how's Um, the music it's well done, but it's not super memorable. Like it's, mm. it's uh, well put together, but there's nothing. I, I watched it, and there's nothing that's ended up on my playlist. Um, it ain't e- Dream Girls. <laughs> um, some excellent performances, though. Uh, Glover and Kimball are both excellent. Kimball is just this. 
he's almost got this Christian Slater energy, like a really manic Christian Slater. Hmm. Like he's he's just operating at such a high intensity. He's almost vibrating through a lot of what he does. It's a really interesting tone. And like by the end of his second scene, he's just drenched in sweat. And <laughs> he's like that for the rest of the play. <laughs> nice. Um, it's but, always uh, fun to watch actors, especially stage actors, get themselves to that point mm. and just have to sit and stew at that. But uh, it's really there's some really strong supporting performances by James Monroe Eichelhart, uh, Jay Bernard Calloway, and Cass Morgan. It's well put together as a filmed thing. Um, it shoots from multiple angles. You get in there close ups. Like it's done professionally. It's done well. Mm. There's actually a few multiple scenes where um, the story takes part in a. TV studio that's broadcasting. So um, they actually use the old-timey cameras in the scene, and they actually film on that stuff. So there's this grainy black and white stuff that will occasionally cut away as, like, like a character is talking to camera on the stage, and you will, instead of seeing that character from the audience perspective, see it from the camera's perspective. So it does some interesting stuff there. Look, in the end, it's enjoyable. I think it has real faults. Um... It really did not deserve to win as many Tonys as it ended up winning. Like, it won Best New Musical the year that it came out, and no. Um, but uh, it's it's okay, you know? It just it felt like something I'd seen many times before in many other forms, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyways, that's me done. Uh, what about you guys? What have you been watching this week? Uh, we've watched a couple of shows that have come back. For us. Uh, the first is one we've not been waiting for nearly as long as the second. Uh, the first is the second season of Good Omens, which has finally returned to us. Uh, a naked archangel turns up at the door of renegade angel Aziraphale, played by Michael Sheen, uh, with no memory of who he is or how he got there. So Aziraphale and retired team and Crowley, played by David Tennant, uh, have their lives become extremely complicated by this fact. They have been sort of exiled by both heaven and hell due to the events of the first season. Or they've been put on house arrest, so to speak. Yeah, they're being observed. Yeah. Uh, Heaven and hell are, however, both desperate to find this particular runaway. Mm. Um, As it comes to the point where to hide this archangel, they pull some nonsense that means that Azimuthal has to lie. And Aziraphale's lie is that he used his powers to bring two people uh, and make them fall in love. Now now Aziraphale and Crowley have to do that without magic. Uh, So they have to do that. And we also get more and more of the backstory of Aziraphale and Crowley, uh, a particularly funny version of the story of Job. Um, Yeah, that that is a very good one. yeah, I'll get John to speak a little bit about it first. Look, it's another season of Good Omens. It's working from information that was discussed between Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman before Pratchett's untimely passing. And it's building from discussions they had about where they would see the characters going in a sequel. Obviously, uh, Michael Sheen and David Tennant have some of the best chemistry I've seen between two actors... And the characters of Aziraphale and Crowley work so well together because they're so different but so similar in many ways. And we actually get to see a time when 
Crowley was an angel. Mm. And we get to see what his job was uh, back when the heavens were being created. So that's quite interesting as well. What this is really about is relationships. This season is about relationships and finding where you stand with people. And that is an interesting thing here. Uh, so, obviously, this is a Neil Gaiman project, so I love it, uh, as is the case with basically everything Neil Gaiman that I've come across. Uh, it's also got the genesis in the first season, which was based on the book by both Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, who I'm also a giant fan of. So it's this crystallization of both their senses of humor coming together, and sadly, Pratchett was not able to be involved because of his passing, but Gaiman has remembered how to work with the ideas that Pratchett would have had, and Gaiman is incredibly involved in this, and it's a more than worthwhile sequel to the original. Um, we'll have to watch more of it to see if we like the first season better than this one. I think yeah. I do still have more of a fondness for the first season, because that has a very clear, oh, here's the plot, it's a race against time. Well, for me, I'm tending towards season two, liking it more. Uh, it Can just I gets ask to how much lot. of it you guys have seen so far? I've seen a couple episodes. Okay. Is it like... Are they doing the weekly releases, or did they dump it all at once? Uh, dumped it all at once. This okay. is on Amazon. Um, but, like, Tenant, Sheen, perfect. They're absolutely fantastic. They've embodied the characters from the top, so it's no real little surprise that they're fantastic here. John Hamm is really, really great this season. Yeah. Uh, he was great in the first season as Gabriel, but don't get me wrong, he is much, much more interesting here. You're getting to see more layers to his character. Yeah. And, and that's what more... can be said just, like, in general. And there's more politics surrounding people's positions within heaven. Yeah. And how all of that came together and why it turns out some people fell in the first place. Yeah, it's... Because Gaiman is really no stranger to this demon's heaven stuff. He's written about it in Sandman. He's written about it in his short stories with stuff like murder mysteries. He's no stranger to the story of the fall. He's no stranger to the, the politicking and bureaucracy of the Silver City. This is something that he knows and understands uh, as a fictional construct. And it's also got this real pratchety feel of they're kind of all goobers. And kind of all assholes. It's like the the unseen university for Discworld, but less cutthroat, <laughs> less, less cutthroat. backstabby. Uh, like the angels here are sort of just passive aggressive, whereas in the unseen academy they're more outwardly hostile. violent towards each uh, other. But like, and, th and that's one of the really great elements of Good Omens. It's the angels are so out of touch. Yeah. There's a whole Outside sequence. of Aziraphale. And they do... The funny thing they do with the story of Job is they have Aziraphale being shocked by the fact that God is allowing all of these terrible things to happen to this really nice man. Because, like, you know the story of Job, Lawson. He's, like, God's favourite guy. And, and then, then he goes through the <laughs> ringer. His yeah. kids die, his... Goats all die. He and Crowley is the demon who's actually meant to get that shit done. <laughs> uh, so it's this really funny thing where Aziraphale's like, D "Dude, why are you even doing this? And, you don't and, have to do this." And, and Crowley's like, "And Crowley's like, well, yeah, I kind of yeah, do. And I've we've got the okay from God." 
And then this is funny... This has come down from him. I've got the contract right here. And it's this funny thing where, like, it's the rest of the angels upstairs who are just like, yeah, yeah, yeah we just got to let this stuff happen. And it's I a mean, bet. it's a bet between God and Satan. And God has promised to give him b- twice of everything uh, when all is said and done. Twice the amount of goats, twice the amount of land, twice the, twice the amount, amount of children. Of ch- children. He could have seven children after this. So what, uh, are the, the same children you're bringing them back? No. No. <laughs> so it's got a real Pratchett sense of humor. Yeah. And like I said about the first season of Good Omens, kind of a Neil Adams vibe. That's kind of what it comes to at the end of it. When you combine Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Douglas Adams. Oh, uh, yeah. Douglas Adams. Neil Adams is someone completely no. different. Uh, Douglas Adams is kind of the vibe they become. They crystallize into it because you've got all of this talk about the law of everything mm. and all of these structures. And Pratchett is very focused on the comedy found within hierarchies and mm. structures, which is basically Douglas Adams. This is really for Terry. Yeah. At the end of the day. I mean, the first season was a tribute to him yeah and this is neil basically like this is what i would have liked to make with my friend yes we also watched the first episode of a new season of a show that has come out which we're very excited about it is thank god you're here the new season is being hosted by celia Pacola and features a groups of four contestants who have to go through Blue Doors into improv improvised scenarios where they're the only ones who don't know why they are there and they are greeted with the titular, thank God you're here. The only information they know going in is that... It's what they can glean from their costume. what they can glean from their costume. And we watched this religiously as kids when the first season came out and we loved it. People like Josh Lawson, Frank Woodley, all of them showing up and... It was always so, so funny. And the sets were always so good. And, you know, you would see people who would go on to make, be in even bigger things. Edgar Samson shows up on a couple episodes. Ross Noble. Ross Noble shows up. Uh, Ed Cavalier shows up as one of the ensemble players. Rebel Rebel Wilson. Wilson. So all of these... Basically every Australian comedian of the past decade. Even one of the... Or past, like, because it's been more than a decade since it's been Even the Blue Wiggle. Even the Blue Wiggle showed up, mm. and you can tell throughout the entire skit that he wasn't sure how far he was willing to go with the improv bits, because <laughs> he's the Blue Wiggle. But yeah, uh, we loved this show, and this new season isn't seeming to disappoint. This first episode has Glenn Robbins as a guest judge, and it features Aaron Chen, Julia Zamiro, Ursula Carlson, and Mark Bonanno. Mark Bonanno being one of the guys from Auntie Donna. And it's like a breath of fresh air from the past. I'll let Harley uh, say his piece about this. Uh, My initial concern going in was that it wouldn't live up to not only our memories of Thank God You're Here, but also just the reality of what it was at the time. Really great sort of complicated sets, really great costuming, and some of the best improv you'd see on this side of... Uh, free-to-air television. Uh, but I am happy to say that this is exactly how it used to be. Obviously, you've not got Tom Gleisner as the adjudicator here, but that does open him up to potentially being a contestant. Mm. Uh, 
uh, Julia Zamira was in this first episode, yep. and she is right back at it. She was like a... She was a constant... She was like a constant face yeah. as a contestant on the show. Uh, and she's great here. And some of the new talent, uh, Aaron Chen in particular, is... Ha- he has this very... He's got a very restrained like, uh Restrained, sense. but surgical. Yeah. Laser focus. He's not doing a, He's not doing a lot, but when he does something... He's yeah. got it right on the money. You've also got Ursula Carlson, who was really funny in the scene that she's in. Uh, she's meant to be a Victorian lady meeting a potential suitor, and <laughs> that uh, she goes for Kiwi Bogan. Yeah, she goes for full on it Bogan in a very Rebel Wilson way. Mm. And Mark Bonanno from Auntie Donna is also there. He was struggling in particular I with feel the like line. He was trying to find the line that he could cross. <laughs> Uh, but we got some... It's free to air TV on Channel 10, so he's not as safe as he thinks with that shit. Yeah, but we got some cameos from some celebrities. Uh, Todd McKenney shows up as a guest for one of the sketches. Mm. And so does Ryan Maloney, Toadie from Neighbours. You know, it's Hell the yeah. Channel 10 people. Wrong Neighbours cast member. Could have gotten Susan, didn't. Should have been Susan. The real great thing about this is it's exactly how it used to be. Did you watch any Thank God You're Here when you were younger, Lawson? Oh, yeah, a lot of it. Um, I had the DVDs and everything, so... It, uh, it's a great show. Yeah. The, the great potential here is to see some of the Australian comics that have sprung up in the interim. Exactly. In yeah. the last ten years. I mean, Celia Pacola is the host. And yeah. You I was fun from that. I'd love to see, like, at least one uh, old-school cast member come back in each episode, but also... Open the space for some new people who have come up. Uh, Tim Bad and Melanie Bracewell, they're on the the cheap seats, I think it is. Uh, you could bring in Ed Cavalier as a contestant. The next episode features Fifi Box, Lloyd Langford, Geraldine, Hick- Geraldine Hickey, and Luke McGregor. Luke McGregor so is going to struggle. What we were talking about on Wednesday is going to happen. Yeah. It's just really great to see a program like this come back. But this is free-to-air TV in the age of streaming. So you never know. So you never know how you long it's going to be here. Well, it always seemed kind of inexplicable to me that it left TV in the first place, because it seemed like it was popular. Like yeah, it, it was insanely popular. Yeah. Like, we've got how many seasons of Bloody Married at First Sight, or Farmer Wants a Wife, or whatever, mm. but they couldn't give us more than four in the original run of Thank God You're Here. Like... I guess reality TV is cheaper. Well, yeah, yeah, but it's not like that. It, I mean, it all takes place in the same studio. And yeah. yes, they are building new sets every week and new costumes every week. But it's not like it doesn't seem to me like it would be hugely expensive to make. Yeah. I, I just hope they keep it going with it. It's to have a live snake in one of the se- scenes this week. Uh, there is one thing missing from this version, though. You know those bits where they would uh, go out in public and have to pretend to play a role? Hmm. Uh, that's not here yet. Uh, yet it's not in the first episode. It they might pop up. They didn't do that in the first season, though. So yeah, they did. They did. did they? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It was always a part of it in between the. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Because the they've got yeah. Because they had to like kill time while yeah. the next thing was being set up. Like I guess that the episodes now might be a bit shorter, um, and so they don't have time for those. But I also understand how like those bits might not work as well now. Uh, maybe as we'll they just have did to back see. then, because a lot of them were just pre-filmed things yeah. where they were I mean, put I, in. If a anything, situation. they'd work even better because you've got so many of those like 
prank shows all over the place. I mean, Netflix has got that one. Mm. That kid from Stranger Things wanders yeah. around pranking people. <laughs> like, it's... I, I think it'll work. And none of the ones in in that show, the Gatton Matarazzo prank show, none of the situations are ones that are even remotely realistic at all. Though That sort of thing wasn't in the first episode. I hope it does come mm. back. Because it is kind of a startling omission. Mm. Yeah, I would just love to see some... Of the new young blood of comedians yeah. show up, it seems a couple like of classics. What they're doing? I would love to see a bunch of the cast from uh, "Have You Been Paying Attention" show up. Yeah, because they're always I'd like a lot to of see fun. Tom Gleisner as a contestant. Yeah, like because Tim Robbins was a contestant a bunch of times. Glenn Robbins. Yeah, yeah. Glenn Robbins. Sorry, Glenn Robbins was a contestant a bunch of times. <laughs> would have been a hell of a thing if Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins <laughs> was yeah, a I contestant know. on "Thank God You." Is my daughter in there? No, that's Sean Penn. That's the wrong guy. He's just playing his character from War of the Worlds. I'd also like to see, like, uh, Sean McAuliffe show up. Yeah. Like, there's a bunch of comedians I'd like to see show up on this show, and I do hope it goes on for a while now, because Channel 10 have been known to really give things a 10-episode run and just, like, cut it recently. Yeah, I'm excited for to see more of it. You said you had a pith take, Lawson? I do indeed. Uh, I have finished a book. Um, I've recently been listening to audiobooks on the way to work, uh, and I've managed to pick out a, another book, even though it's been a, quite a while since my last one. But I should be able to have more of them to talk about more regularly now, because I've I found a new uh, a new routine basically that should help me pick a few of these off. But this is tomorrow when the war began. It's a young and this adult. This is Lawson's book report. Yes, it's a young adult thriller uh, written by John Marsden. Um, it's set in the small Australian country town of Wirriwi. Uh, it follows a high schooler named Ellie, and a bunch she and a bunch of her friends go deep into the bush for a camping trip. And when they come back, um, after having been completely cut off from civilization for several days, they find that Australia has been invaded and occupied by an enemy nation. And so they've got to survive and become a guerrilla force uh, fighting back against these invaders. Uh, I obviously talked about the movie several months ago, and I decided that I wanted to go in and read the books as well because the movie ends on a big cliffhanger and never got a sequel. So uh, this is me starting off right from the beginning. It's a strong entry for teen fiction. Uh, it's it's very well observed. The characters are all three-dimensional and real. They have their own voices. They sound right. Um, and it gets a lot of mileage, I think, about setting up the teen dynamics of the storyline, the, you know, the love triangles and the friction and things like that. Because not, not everyone's going to respond the same way. No, against the dramatic plot device of the invasion. Um, it's done in the first person so it's all done from the perspective of Ellie and she has a great voice like they've uh John Marston has really nailed writing a act like a character and everything about the character sort of influences the prose um it's the right blend of introspection and attitude it's well written it's sort of casual but with weight to it as well you can definitely see why um the character would really appeal to teenage girls as well. Um, so it seems very successful in that sense. The invasion stuff is quite exciting. There's some really 
neat thriller stuff like i i always liked that part of the movie and it, it works here as well that sort of emerging from the bush and figuring out what went wrong and just yeah. bit by bit mm. by bit uncovering what it is that's happened um in some ways it's country australia frozen in time as well i mean this was a book that was written in 1993 this is pre the internet really this is pre mobile phones and smartphones and social media and everything like that so they really are trapped with no way of contacting anybody or any organization anything like they are completely on their own in a way that i feel adds to it and would be lessened if you were telling the same story set in 2023 um there's a real isolation that's present in a way that's just no longer possible. Um, I mean, look at all of the stuff that is going on in Ukraine at the moment, and we've just got so much of it, um, mm. so much footage, so much contact, like social media still going on. Like this just like this isolates the characters in a, yeah. in a way that I think kind of feels like it's out of time. Like there's a very mm. sort of classical feel to it. And it doesn't talk down to its target audience. It it has its limits. It's still a young adult fiction novel in the early 90s. But uh, there's violence. The characters kill people. There's, um, there's, you know, sexual tension and that stuff that is starting to get expanded on a lot more in the second book, which I'm reading now. Um, and it talks about the driving mentality of the invasion and on the characters' responses to the invasion in a really interesting way. It's maybe not something that I think would actually be considered by a group of teenagers in their situation, but I think it's actually valuable that Marsden has gone into it, you know, that he's tried to sort of pitch a reason why Australia would be invaded, pitch a complexity of responses to it, um, and do that in a way that sort of feels like it's got a from the uh like an overhead view of it rather than just being a sort of myopic i don't know red dawn kind of thing they've come mm. here so we're going to kill them that kind of thing it, yeah. it tries to be a little more textured about it yeah um, they're doing this to survive yeah and it affects them like that's the other thing like it it bothers them that they're kill- having to kill people and I, I, I know that the first sequence where one of the enemy combatants dies due to the actions of the kids. It's an explosion, the explosion of, like, a lawnmower. Yeah. And it fucks them up good emotionally. It and there's a bunch shatters of different, There's them. a bunch of different responses, too. Yeah. Because there's one character who's very religious. Yeah. And that affects them in a very specific way that one of the other characters doesn't get affected. It's... And then there's Kevin, who I would think probably voted for Clive Palmer at the last election. Yeah. Um. (laughs) There's this this complexity of human responses. Is he the stoner, or is he the boyfriend of the religious girl? The religious girl doesn't have a boyfriend. No. Um, It's Cory, Cory's boyfriend. So it's Ellie's best friend's boyfriend. The one played by Lincoln Lewis in the the movie is Kevin. Yeah. Um, Uh, But, like, it reminds me of something like Animorphs. It's a war story, and by the end, Animorphs was bleak as hell. And what was that old young adult novel series about? There was something about an alien computer being found by a bunch of children, and ah, the shit. entire uh, thing turns into a 
whole intergalactic shit show with characters dropping like flies? No, I know the one you're talking about. It's on the tip of my tongue. It's about this uh, alien computer that lands on Earth. Uh, kid finds it. Then things really spin out of control. Uh, shit. I'll Google it. Just continue talking. Yeah. But, like, I like Tomorrow and the War Began because I did read it when I was when I was younger. It's It doesn't talk down. It's a war story about teenagers having to deal with everything that that means, you know? Yeah, it's it doesn't have a real finale. I will say that yeah. as a criticism. It ends quite suddenly. Um, and, I mean, it is hard to judge as a standalone thing. It's part one of seven. Um, but it doesn't have a complete... Like, there, there are other ones like... Um, the Harry Potter series, for example, even something like Half Blood Prince, which is very much table setting um, for a lot of it for the finale, it still has its own complete arc. Yeah, it a has a, it has a specific uh, issue that's being addressed, and it has its own rise. And it has all... its own finale. Yeah. Yeah. This doesn't. So um, I will say that for it. Um, but uh, yeah, the film was very accurate. Uh, actually, mm. much more accurate than I expected it to be, given you know just the general um, restraints of adaptations to movies. No, this pretty much nails the the whole plot skeleton of it every way. I mean, they they depict things in the movie that you don't see described in detail in the um, in the book because Ellie's not present for them. Yeah. So they've um, they've changed some of the. Uh, the orders of things and which characters go where, but... And, you know, difference in format sort of stuff. Yeah, for the most part, very accurate. But anyways, that's me done for I the week. I think we were uh, overstating the potential darkness of this uh, kid's uh, young adult series. It's called Outernet. It gets dark, doesn't it? I think so. I think we might be mixing our memories With Animorphs, yeah. What we've read about Animorphs, so. uh, Oh, who did the, the reading for this audiobook? Um, Susie Doherty, I believe her name is. So she's really, really good. She gives a, a real personality to Ellie, and she's got a personality for all of the other characters as well. Um, I will say, if I just... like So James Marsden wrote seven of these, um, huh. and... No, not James Marsden, John Marsden. James Marsden is the guy from X-Men. Um, he wrote seven of these, and then he came back um, a few years later and did a pre a sequel trilogy. So that's uh, that's just what you do if you write a popular book series, is you come back and you write multiple <laughs> sequel series. But yeah. uh, Susie Doherty did the um, the narration for all of the uh, the... Tomorrow When the War Began books, and the first of the sequel trilogy, but then was replaced for the last two of the sequel trilogy, which I know mm. is going to annoy the hell out of me. Unless yeah. unless there is some like spectacular plot twist and Ellie is killed off at the end yeah. of that first Unless book. it's for specific reason. And then Jackie Woodburn comes in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be too good, but it's probably not the case. Yeah. So yes, that's me done for the week. I will update you as my journey with the series continues. Awesome. But why don't we now move on to our deep dive into The Beaver. The Beaver. Now we will play for you the trailer to The Beaver. Is Dad gone? He's not gone, honey. We just... 
agree that it's better if we don't live together anymore. I'm glad you kicked him out. What a loser. This is the story of Walter Black, a hopelessly depressed individual. The successful and loving family man he used to be has gone missing. And no matter what he's tried, Walter can't seem to bring him back. What's that? It's a brain. Mom says yours got broken. So you can see that Walter is a man who's lost all hope. But he's about to find his voice. Look at you. I'm sick. Do you want to get better? Who are you? I'm the beaver, Walter. And I'm here to save your damn life. <laughs> The person who handed you this card is under the care of a prescription puppet designed to help create a psychological distance between himself and the negative aspects of his personality. This is a joke, right? No, son. It's a fresh start. Good morning, all. As of now, Walter was resigning and putting me in charge. Have a look at this. A beaver? It's the future. Mr. Beaver Woodchopper Kit selling out in droves. I've been very patient, but I want you, not him. This man is a dead end. He's gone. I want daddy. I know, buddy. When I was a little kid, all I ever wanted was to be like you. Then I got older, I just want to be anybody else. I know. So I swear. We start with a good part. That was the trailer for The Beaver. It is a dramedy directed by Jodie Foster and it follows Walter Black, played by Mel Gibson, a family man and toy company executive who has fallen into a bitter and unyielding depression. It's put a strain on his wife Meredith, played by Foster, and his two sons. The younger boy, Henry, played by Riley Thomas Stewart, is confused by his emotionally absent dad and is beginning to feel neglected. But older son, Porter, played by Anton Yelchin, is going through problems of his own. He feels the same dark cloud over his own life that he sees now enveloping his father and is taken to obsessively documenting all the ways in which they are similar on post-it notes in his bedroom and relentlessly headbutting the wall when it all gets too much. The one bright spot is Nora, played by Jennifer Lawrence, a cheerleader at school who is paying Porter to write her valedictory speech for her after her difficult home life results in a serious case of writer's block. They get on really well, and Porter's hoping it goes somewhere, but soon enough his own home life explodes. One day, Walter comes home with a beaver puppet on one hand that he fished out of the dumpster. He refuses to communicate with anyone except through the voice of this hand puppet, which has a Cockney accent because, as the film adaptation of The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe taught us, beavers sound like Ray Winstone. Walter, or to put it more accurately, the beaver, tells everyone that this is a therapy puppet prescribed by Walter's therapist designed to create a psychological distance between himself and the things that trouble him. Henry is delighted, Meredith is concerned, and Porter is furious. It's undeniable that Walter brightens up when accompanied by the beaver. His relationship with Henry is repaired, his marriage finds some spice to it again, and his decision to pursue beaver-themed woodcarving kits at his toy company is an inexplicable smash hit with children across the nation. 
But eventually it becomes clear to Meredith that the beaver is a crutch, something Walter is using to avoid grappling with his mental illness. It's untenable, and as friction in the black household draws to a head, it prompts a dramatic fallout that pushes everybody to their limit. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts about the beaver? Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is a lot darker than I thought it was going to be, just going after what the cover of the DVD was. It isn't really a dramedy, it is far too serious for that, but Anton Yelchin does a great job, Uh, Mel Gibson does a very good job here as well, and it's got some assured direction from Jodie Foster. Alright, you ready Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is one of those movies that I like to call quirky but sad, and is full of that kind of music. Gibson is great, Yelchin is a revelation, Foster has a really assured hand as a director, and is also really great here as a performance, uh, and Jennifer Lawrence is really great too. Yeah, it's not nearly as funny as the label dramedy would suggest, it just is a drama at the end of the day, beyond the idea of the puppet. Well, here I think you've both pointed at my big problem with this movie, which is it doesn't know what it wants to be. Or it has an idea of what it wants to be, but it's not willing to take the steps that it needs to take to get there. Um, I will agree with you all that the performances are quite strong. um, But ultimately, this is a movie, I think, with a confused perspective. And ultimately, it seems unable or unwilling to do what it needs to do to become a movie that's actually good and not just quirky. Uh, Mm. And I'm sure we'll get to it, but I have significant reservations about the ending. Yeah. Oh, uh, just going in, before we talk about the actual movie, can I detail you what I thought the direction of this movie was going to go in was? Sure. So, Walter has been having suicidal ideation. He's had a sort of a brain fog for years. He gets basically kicked out of his house. He goes to a hotel. He attempts to self-terminate. And that doesn't go... Because the shower thing breaks, so he try he then goes to jump off this building, but then the puppet starts talking to him. Now I thought the puppet was going to start telling him to burn the entire thing down. And I thought that we were going to get a moment in this movie where he goes absolutely postal and takes out a civil servant. Like I honestly believed that was the direction this film was going in. And I'm kind of shocked that it wasn't. Well, what I thought it was it was going to do clashes with that idea, uh, and what it ended up actually being. I thought, like, the puppet was going to be of help. It helps him get out of his shell, become more of himself. Uh, the puppet becomes less and less necessary uh, for him, and he starts to actually recover. No, that's not what this turned out to be. It turned out to have a much bleaker view on that. Yeah, than you I anticipated. Could, you guys won't have seen it yet, but listeners will have heard it by now. But the trailer is a crock of shit. It's selling you <laughs> something that it is not. It's selling the feel-good family comedy of the year about oh, a man bullshit. who uses a beaver <laughs> puppet like, to see, make that's himself the better movie, again. That's again the movie I thought it was going to be. But, like, no, it's not. My, you, sorry, my, res- my response from last week. My response from last week is what I'm talking about. Yeah. When, I, when My response to hearing we're doing this movie is, I've heard of this, oh fuck. Mm. And 
the moment we get that narration where it's like, this is Walter Black. He is, base paraphrasing, he is morbidly depressed. His son is no better. And here we go. He's going to try to commit suicide. I thought this was going to go in a more falling down scenario. That yeah, you thought it was puppet- going to be more anarchic. Yeah, I thought this yeah. puppet was going to be like the worst kind of help to him. Like a Jojo it- Rabbit situation sort of i thought yeah, kind of i base basically i thought that the puppet was going to radicalize him i thought that the puppet was going to be some quirky help and some quirky fun like the idea of man gets talking to puppet sounds like like okay so, so this is an interesting thing that we should get out of the way just right at the top this movie was made in the brief window between Mel Gibson's first meltdown and Mel Gibson's second meltdown. Mm. So <laughs> this this movie comes out a few years after the infamous arrest tape of him being anti-Semitic um, mm-hmm. while drunk uh, and being arrested. And there's this few years there and then he comes back, right? And he does this, he does like Edge of Darkness, stuff like that. You, you can sort of see if... Like, Hollywood is just sort of sidling up to Mel Gibson again and saying, is he okay now? Is he calmed down? Is people Are people going to go and see his movies again? Mm. And so he films this movie, which is directed by Jodie Foster, who's a very good friend of his, uh, had been for a while, still is to this day, um, and she casts him in this film. To help out, basically. I don't know. I can see why you would cast him. Like, he gives a good performance. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's actually also kind of a uh, even a meta element that he brings to it in the sense mm. of being a man who's had a very public breakdown, playing a man who has a very public breakdown. Yeah. Um, but then after this movie is shot, while it's in post-production, uh, you get the second very public meltdown that he has, which is the uh, phone call of him that is leaked, like screaming at, I think his, I can't remember if it was his wife or his girlfriend. I think it's his wife. But like, very verbally abusive, screaming racial slurs, and that's when Hollywood's just like, oh, no, no, he's still, no, no, Mel, go back over there, go back in the corner. And, and basically he was uh, no longer an A-lister. Yes. And he shows up in Daddy's Home. That was the, um, well, Daddy's Home's actually the, Daddy's Home and Hacksaw Ridge, Those that's the highlight <laughs> since then. Um, <laughs> like we will he hasn't inevitably- gone as bad as Jim Caviezel has, so he's, he's not the... Worst Passion of the Christ alumni. Mm. Mm. Jim Caviezel's gone in sort of... He's gone to Neverland, whereas <laughs> Mel Gibson is more of the old-school, hateful bigotry kind yeah, yeah. of thing. Daddy, We will inevitably end up doing an episode on Daddy's Home too, because that's the joke, Naturally. is that Mark Wahlberg's father is played by Mel Gibson and Will Farrell's father is played by John Lisker. <laughs> yeah. Um, Spectacular. Must be done. This, this really, this period marks the the stake through the heart of his career. If there was any oh, doubt that he was going to rise again, um, no, this this put an end to it. And this movie mm-hmm. was badly, badly hurt by that. Obviously, it killed any chance of um, wide distribution. It ended up um, making more Oscar talks. Yeah, yeah. Um, it ended up making over only seven point three million dollars worldwide on a twenty one million dollar budget. Um, and that's before marketing and distribution costs and everything. So it really did... Uh, well, not to mention how bullshit the marketing was. Well, by the time Summit Entertainment 
Like they just wanted it off the books. They put it out in 22 theaters in America. Yeah. Um, so yes, it got a cinema release on a technicality. Oh yeah. These days <laughs> they would have like sold it to Tubi or something. Um, yeah. Oh, that would have been fuck. I'd be so sorry for Foster in that scenario. But um, and it's it's interesting also. Maybe maybe it's a good thing for Jennifer Lawrence in the long run that um that this movie died on the vine like it did because it takes place it comes out like pretty much simultaneously with her meteoric rise it comes out the same year as uh x-men first class it actually comes out um within weeks of each other actually mm. uh and uh it cam- comes out the same year that she's nominated for her first oscar for winter's bone mm. so you know, it's a very interesting time in the part of, I would say actually in the part of all four of its leads, because at the same time you've got Anton Yelchin, a rising star, um, just coming off of the first Star Trek movie, about to go into the second Star Trek movie, but he is, he's basically starting to fill a point where that Tom Holland is filling now. Like, yeah. I, yeah. you have to, I really wonder what the career trajectory of Anton Yelchin would have been if he had not passed away. Um, and it's such a tragic story. Yes, but he he was he's very much of that Tom Holland vibe, yeah. um, especially when you see something like Charlie Bartlett, which I've talked about on this podcast. It's very much like you can see Tom Holland playing that role so easily. Um, mm. You know, it's almost like Tom Holland filled the role that Anton Yeltsin would have would have yeah. occupied. But and then Jodie Foster obviously is is in the portion of her career where she's really i'd say slowing down after uh, after many years of being a very recognizable and popular actress she's slowing down at this point and i was looking at her filmography she really hasn't done a whole lot in the last decade or so so uh she does a roman polanski movie the same year um but her previous movie before this, this came out in 2011. Her previous movie before this was Nim's Island in 2008. Mm. Um, then she does the Roman Polanski movie the same year, 2011. She plays. How's the- that for a double feature? Oh, yeah, Mel Gibson and Roman Polanski in the same year. Shit. Yeah. yeah. Yikes. Um, but then she plays the villain in Elysium in 2013. Yeah. She doesn't yeah. turn up again until Hotel Artemis in 2018. And she's very good in that. Oh, shit, that's right, yeah. And then she, she also plays... directed an episode of Black Mirror, Archangel. And then she plays yeah. uh, a, a role in The Mauritanian, the sort of Iraq courtroom drama thing in 2021. But, like, that's it. Since this movie came out, one, two, three, four acting roles over the course of 12 years. Ugh. Um, and Could she's... be that she just wanted to slow down. Yeah. Yeah. Um. She is in the. She's leading the new season of True Detective. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. cool. That's yeah. cool. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, she is. She is definitely uh, in a. They're all of these these cast members are in a pretty important transitional point in their careers. Hmm. Um, well, and it's Jodie Foster's first. Is this her first directing gig? No. It, it it's probably worth noting. I should I should just say that this is and I debate how um, much it's responsible for her absence on screen recently, but uh, this she only came out as gay in 2007. So yeah. that really coincides with her starting not to appear in a lot of movies, and you do wonder whether yeah. 
you know, there's entrenched homophobia that is to blame yeah. for that. I mean, it's not or like... Perhaps like, she wanted to just be more private with her life Yeah, at that point. But she, uh, she was very, um, you know, she wasn't out in public, but from the sounds yeah. of it, it, like, again, it's, it's real icky talking about someone's sexual orientation as public knowledge or something, but yeah. from the sounds of it, it was one of those things where it was fairly well understood that she was gay. It just wasn't something that she felt comfortable talking about in public, but yeah. which is fair enough. Um, it's no one's business but hers, but yeah, interesting uh, interesting point that all of these um, cast members find themselves in. Mm. As In terms of her directing, let me just look at her filmography here. So this was her third film, but her first since the 90s. And uh, well, there you go. She's, she's done more directing than acting in recent years. So she's directed yeah. a fair amount of TV. You already mentioned Black Mirror. She directed episodes of Orange is the New, ba- New Black. Um, Tales from the Loop, that Apple anthology series. She directed the George Clooney movie Money Monster, which is actually quite good. Um, But then, sort of to complete the trilogy of of awful male leads, she directs an episode of House of Cards. Um, God damn it. (laughs) Fuck me. It's like she's... That's that's some shit luck. Problematic baseball cards. To be fair, the Kevin Spacey stuff was not public at that time, whereas the no. Mel Gibson, Roman Polanski stuff most stuff certainly was. was. <laughs> yeah, that's... It is surprising how many people sort of hitch their wagon to the whole Roman Polanski thing. Because mm. it's like, come on, you gotta know. Yeah, we've you been... You gotta know. We've been through yeah. that sort of stuff before on the Ghost Rider episode. It wasn't even a a thing of not knowing about it or not wanting to talk about it. There was this straight up, this vein of, of support for Polanski mm, yeah. right up until really the Me Too movement. But like that same movie that she was in of his, Carnage, is also got Kate Winslet and Christoph Waltz and John C. Riley in it. Mm-hmm. Like he was getting major stars for his movie right up until it became controversial for anyone to be in his movies. Yeah. Which took way longer than it really should have. Yeah. Um, anyways, the beaver. I've noticed how we're trying to trying as hard <laughs> as we can not to have to talk about the beaver. <laughs> um oh, the movie or the character? Because I would argue that the beaver is a character in and of his own right. That he is almost sim symbiotic in a sense. He's almost feeding off of Walter's weakness. Well, the way I would look at it is, like, Walter disassociates. He very clearly develops another persona, which is the beaver. Well, it's, I don't know if he does, because, like, the dissociative personality disorder, as I understand it, is, and I'm I'm not a psychologist, so don't take me to the bank on this, but from what I understand, it is a fully developed personality that is sort of exists as its own personality, as its mm. own full three-dimensional thing. The like Walter and like the Beaver is fully aware that it is a mm. mechanic, mechanical thing used by mm. Walter the person. And I think the implication there is that a lot of the Beaver's personality and mannerisms is based yeah. potentially on Walter's father. Yeah, because you get this thing where it's it's sort of revealed somewhat opaquely that Walter's father probably died by suicide. That's the implication. Yeah. Um, that this is a thing that is gone down to Walter and now is going or is threatening to go down to Porter as well. Yeah, it's yeah. the kind of thing where, oh, this is more serious 
probably than even his psychiatrist or psychologist understands it to be, that this is far deeper an issue than he can solve on his own. Yeah, I'm going to say this right right at the start. This is a tender and um, and fairly hot-button sort of topic to talk about when you're talking about mental health and suicide yeah. and that kind of thing. To not have a professional voice in this movie in the form of a yeah. of a therapist, but to actually just have it all be this sort of self-diagnosing and, you know, self-therapizing uh, people mm. rocking around and to ha- especially to have it end the way that it does. Okay, so I'm just going to go right straight to it because that's clearly where the conversation's brought us. I My favorite part of the movie is when he cuts his arm off. Because that's yeah. the one part of the movie where I, where that movie all of a sudden becomes what it should have been the whole way through, which is a really dark, abrasive, and absurd comedy. You know, the, mm. uh, uh, absurdist dramedy. Because like the idea of a man cutting off his arm because the beaver puppet on it has taken a life of its own and is now terrorizing him. It's that the is, Evil Dead bit. Yeah, it's it's an absurd concept, yeah. um, and. You know, if if some, like if if the whole movie had been in the tone of something like The Voices or something yeah, like yeah. that, something that had a bit exactly of- The Voices is exactly the vibe. Yeah, you just I just remembered The Voices. It's so good. It needed to be nastier and more to abrasive. To the point where it's got like a, a Cockney animal sidekick. But it, mm. I think it knows Scottish in that one. I think. No, it's yeah, Scottish. Yeah, it is Scottish. Yeah. That's right. Because you get the like the dopey sounding dog, and then the evil Scottish cat. Yeah, um, that's right. But Both uh, voiced, I believe, by Ryan Ryan Reynolds. Reynolds. Yes. Yeah, but we've got to um, do the voices when do. it gets to that. But like, that's what this movie should have been. It should have been. It should yeah. have had a bit of a nasty streak and a bit of an abrasive streak the whole way through. And that's how you, you know, you or or Martin McDonough, something like. Mm. Like mm. his style, there needed to be, frankly, a bit more guts in how it approached it. But the way that it's yeah. approaching it yeah. for the majority of it is, is like it's afraid to offend or it's afraid to alienate. It shouldn't be bitter because I don't think like the voices or the Martin McDonough work are bitter, but they have to be tinged with venom. Yeah, it there has yeah. to be a there has to be a subversiveness to it. Yeah, it's going to be cutting. That's what him chopping his hand off has. And the fact that the moment after it happens, it is played completely straight. Like, no, this was a severe case of self-harm. Yeah. And Mm. he gets taken to an actual facility after the fact. And it's... They play exit music from a film by Radiohead. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's the tone. Of that moment, exactly. Exactly. Mm. The movie self-actualizes in that moment. For a brief period of maybe two or three minutes, it becomes the movie that I wish it was from beginning to end. Because if you're going to play with this recipe, if you're going to try and cook this particular brand of dramedy up, then you need to actually not flinch at being a bit ugly. Mm. And this movie flinches. And And so instead of it being something like The Voices or something like, again, Martin McDonough, where it's funny, but in its humour, it finds really important things to say and Mm. lands an emotional wallop on the viewer. Instead, it becomes this almost like 
nervous giggling in a hospital waiting room. I mean, to be fair, though, expecting this movie to be a Martin McDonough film is kind of unfair. I know, because Martin McDonough is probably my favourite screenwriter of all time. But you know what I mean. Yeah, I I, I get it, yes. Totally. This movie has no confidence. That's really... That's probably the best way to put it. And then we get to the end where it's had that moment, okay. But I so object to where the movie leaves us. That the movie leaves us, he's okay now because he's cut off his arm. (laughs) It should have ended us with a moment where the fake arm reaches up and starts whispering in his ear. To show that he's not quite there yet. Well, no, but like the Mm. fact that... Basically, and I'm, I'm only being somewhat facetious about this, but as the movie presents it, once he's cut off his arm, he's better than he has been in the entire rest of the movie. He's himself mm. again in a way we've never seen him. And he's just sitting in this doctorless mental health ward. <laughs> and, you know, Anton Yelchin comes to see him. Anton Yelchin's also not solved any of his problems. But now that the arm, now that the arm is gone everyone's just sort of opening up now and it's sort of like that it risks and i'm not saying that this is the movie's intent but i'm saying Mm. as presented by the movie it risks the message being that the amputation worked that the amputation (laughs) got rid of got rid of the mental health problem that it is within the left hand that depression is held yeah and like you have that i'll I'll come and find it at the end but you have that infuriating voiceover at the end of the uh, the film, where it's oh. like, this is a story about Walter Black, Walter who Black. had to become the beaver, so one day he could just be Walter Black. And I'm like, my guy, like, narrator dude, he solved nothing. He's this, <laughs> like, this is the worst possible spot that he's been in so far. Like, he's down one limb. And... <laughs> and his... I think the beaver won in this scenario. Like, like cutting you off your arm... Is not the cost of therapy. Exactly. Like, <laughs> what is the message here? That he's finally he's he's finally done something enough to to hurt himself bad enough that he's gotten mental health um therapy no, Lawson, in you see, America. He's taken a like, load off. Like the mental the like the American healthcare system finally has no choice but to intervene because Like I know that it costs an arm and a leg in the United States. But it's not meant to literally do that. And it it does risk the sort of idea being that self-harm is the solution. And that is a very dangerous road to go down. Mm. And it's the situation of none of the part, none of the issues that he was dealing with, his interpersonal relationships, his issues with his father, all of these deeply held problems that have formed over his entire life have not been solved what because the beaver made his business good and then had a literal fist fight with him that ended up with a decapitation slash amputation this isn't a solution this is a bad this is a bad situation he's going to regress again he's going to regress again it's not gonna be good well, we just we've been saying it. It's afraid of alienating everyone, so it can't leave us in that spot. It can't leave us in the true horror and the severity of what's just happened. So it pulls back. It tells us that he's going to be all right. That Porter's going to be all right. It offers no evidence, but the narrator tells us, and mm. it ends. And that's. So, I'm sorry. It's like Porter's going to be all right. I don't know. I think he fucked himself on this one. 
What, because, but everything's gonna be okay because Jennifer Lawrence is his girlfriend now? Well, it's not just that, it's like, he, he was the one to find his father. Yeah, yeah that he, too. He, that can't help. He saw his father, who's been having a really rough go of it. To put and it lightly. He straight up, straight up headbutted the wall of his bedroom so often that he's knocked a literal hole through it. Yeah, he's yeah. self-harming as well. He's He hates what? becoming his father. He's well on his way to putting some kind of puppet of a badger on his hand in about 20 years. Well, it's not just that. It's like, not only is he not doing great in and of himself, he's also screwed his chances for his further education. Hmm. By, you know, doing all this stuff with writing other people's essays. Well, if it wasn't for that snitch, he would have gotten yeah, away with you, it. Snitches get stitches. Mm. He will end up in a ditch. The beaver is the one who'll do it. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't... Like, did you notice he, how they okay, never the talk thing. about having found the beaver at the scene? I think he scampered off. I think he's still got <laughs> Mel Gibson's hand in him. Okay, the thing is, with Porter's whole scheme, he could have kept that shit going. He had a system, you know? It, it's gradual over time that these people have to improve. It, it no, can't just be a not... bang, a grade stuff. No, like, but he it's because that one bloke was like, I'm not going to read the essay. That's about me. Which, if the essay, not that I condone cheating at all on your essays, but if it's about you, maybe you're the one who should write it. Or <laughs> I at least know, know what it's going to be talked about. Mm. I want to know what Porter's process of this is. Did he leave a paper trail? Or did he print the thing and then hand it to the person? Because if there's any, like, emails or communications and things, he's screwed. But he True. could just turn around and say, prove it. What are you talking about? I'm thinking there was some sort of electronic paper trail Yeah, there. probably, like, suspicious payments, things like that. I don't think in a That's situ- true. And he, and he also said he did set up those uh, that fake essay writing website. Ah, and, and, which cool. like and also, you know domain fact, names you gotta purchase that shit which is a money trail back to you the school's obviously not going to dig into that they're not the fbi they're not the fbi but still the snitch i mean to be fair though also this confrontation happens well it's barely even a confrontation porter just sort of lets it happen this is after walter's already chopped his hand off so mm. he's porter's already not in a great headspace so he's not going to be able to really fight these charges with any kind of verve or pep that he might have had prior to this. Well, it's not only that, like, under the control of the beaver, his father actually pushes him into a wall and hurts him. Mm. There's the psychological well, yeah, it, damage it, it, of yeah, and that. It's a little, it's a little more um, complex than that, because Paul is the one that fronts up to Walter first. Yeah. He fronts up to the beaver, and the beaver doesn't take <laughs> shit from anyone. But it's like... He doesn't fuck around. But, like, the psychological effect of yeah. that has well, got to be... Hot take here. Um, The Jodie Foster character. Terrible parent. Terrible parent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because Walter... I'm giving Walter a pass. He's got his own shit going on. You know, mm-hmm. he's in a really bad spot, and he needs help. And, frankly, it's not being, you know, provided to him. Um. Partly through his own choice, because he stopped going to see his therapist. Uh, I, I think his therapist should have suggested he go to a facility before much this happened. I feel like there was there, enough okay, about there his might not have been case. Yes. There might not there might not have been examples of uh, explicit danger to himself or others at that point, uh, which is what would be necessary to get him 
Yeah. I, I understand but all, that, but, yeah, but also, his case was more severe than it's probably more medication se- and therapy. It's probably more severe than he let on. Yeah, but we're also not. Therapist. We also don't know how long it's been since he's seen the therapist. I mean, True, when exactly. when he comes in with the puppet, Jodie Foster says something. But you haven't you haven't seen Doctor So and So in months. Yeah. So it might and not have been like, that bad. It's all right, love. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get Walter back again. It's just like a Joker. I've got a car to hand to you. But with all of this, like no one knows what's going on with Porter, like at all. Hmm. Like, there's yeah. no, there's, they never engaged with him, either of like, them, at all. What, what bothered me the most in the first sort of sequence we get with the family and the having the dinner is how, like, disengaged the mother is mm. from oh, her well, children. It's a terribly written part. Like, yeah. Jodie Foster, you know, if, if she wasn't directing it, I'd feel sorry for her, frankly, for having mm. so little to do. But it's it's a terribly written part. It's, an, it's a nothing character she she only really exists to be affected by her relationship with mel gibson and i mean there is Mm. that scene where they have that where the beaver yells at her in the restaurant where he's like you think his problem was that he doesn't remember no no his problem is that he does remember i love Mm. that they're straight up yelling by the end of that, and then oh, when, the, yeah, when they do the re- when they do the reverse shot of the whole restaurant, no one is paying any attention to, oh, the, attention to you them. Know the people pe- would be looking. You yeah. have to know that the people who work in that restaurant have seen these kinds of fucking movie arguments all the goddamn time. I'm just saying. Be- can you imagine being on the neighbouring table and being like, "Hey, you you getting any of this?" <laughs> like, I, I would I would just be sitting there eating, just watching. Like, no, no. I, I'd be absolutely thrilling dinner and a show. No, no, Fantastic. I'd be, I'd be sitting there just like, just like, just angling Actually, myself away. To be fair, though, from the situation, just trying to eat. It's like to be fair. Yes, I, I actually agree with you. I, in a perfect world, I would be watching and sort of enthralled. I would probably actually be having a panic attack because I'm bad at <laughs> confrontation. Like I'm bad around confrontation that doesn't concern me. I would be probably like. This is a bad fucking energy gang. It's like, <laughs> I gotta go. Like, can I get this to go? I'll, I'll get a doggy bag. Fucking put it put it in my pockets. It's I like, gotta leave. He's screaming at his missus through a cockney puppet. This is not a fun vibe for just a night out with the missus. I do love how the beaver had a little suit. <laughs> like, little suit. okay, so did he have like that made? Like he had to have oh, yeah, it made. That's, he, that's, 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 he had a no, tailored at the toy. You know company. that he, he actually went to like a fucking builder bear place, and he was like, "Hello, love. Do you have any uh, formal wear? Formal wear? <laughs> I'm taking like, my missus out for our anniversary." But wait, like, see. he preemptively had a tuxedo for this beaver puppet made, with the eventuality that it would one day be used. Like <laughs> mm. the mechanics well, of this. You never- you never know when you're going to have to be in a situation where you have to dress up. You know, he might, he might have had a meeting with a bunch of the board members, and it would be a little bit weird if, you know, the beaver's just out here Donald Ducking it, so you gotta dress him up nice. We keep coming back to that core friction at the heart of this movie, which is that it wants to be funny, but it's mm. too nervous to do the things that it needs to do to be funny. Mm. Like, what it, we are describing it, it, is funny. The fact that he went and got 
a tuxedo made for the puppet. It should have been a scene in and of itself. I mean, that's a whole conversation with someone at a toy shop somewhere, and the person who has to, like, take the measurements of the beaver without removing the beaver from his hand, he doesn't take the beaver off, he wears it in the shower... He has to blow dry it. Oh my god, he that wears beaver it must while be smelling sex with his wife. He found <laughs> the beaver <laughs> gets involved. He found the beaver in a dumpster for God's sake. The beaver climaxes the moment Mel Gibson does. <laughs> it's bizarre. That beaver must be rank. That's the thing. It's neat it's neither fish nor fowl. It's not a drama or a comedy. It's not absurd and it's not dark. It's trying to blend it all, but it can't. It, it just ends up with this lumpy mess. The and- mix is wrong. It's mm. they they fucked up in the recipe somewhere along the way. Like and it's not to mention it's got that quirky music that's like, oh, we're all serious and sad, but also like, haha, we're also very, very smart and intellectual. We're it, sad in a quirky way, is it's, the way that you put it while we were watching it. It's it's the same music you'd find in something like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or 500 Days of Summer. It's the same kind of music with that same kind of vibe. Well, to yeah, paraphrase it's the trying to be from- those movies. It wants desperately to be those movies. It's like, I'm sad, but I'm very airy about it. It's interesting that you bring up Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, because in previous versions of this movie, while it was in pre-production, um, Jim Carrey was attached to play that would work the a character. Fuck of a lot better. So was Steve Carell at one point. Again, oh, that would have worked a lot better. They would have been they would have been even vibe. They would have been able to find the comedy in it. Exactly. Steve Carell, who just straight up went and made like a kind of sliding doors version of this story with Welcome to Marwin. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I still need to check that out. It's a Robert Zemeckis joint where Steve Carell is thoroughly abused by the people in his town and he finds solace with a bunch of figurines that he has Robert Zemeckis, yeah, and it keeps like having these adventures that the figurines have and they're all like plasticky versions of real actors and it's all actor mm. like robert zemeckis will just straight up not do a movie these days unless there's some like horrifying uncanny valley element to it <laughs> scary oh, puppet yeah. movie i mean that's that's i'm sure that's how they got him with the elevator pitch for the witches oh so who do you get oh anne hathaway can she be a lizard woman okay let's talk about anton yelchin he's yeah. phenomenal he is, and so is Lawrence. Like, that's the thing. For the rest of this movie, I kind of wish that I was... Like, for a movie that's about a guy with a beaver puppet on his hand that, like, takes over his life, I'm so uninterested in that. I'm so <laughs> much more interested in the generic teen drama of social outcast crushing on the cheerleader girl. And the mm. only reason that is is because those two actors are as good as they are. Mm. Yeah. Yeltsin was such a brilliant talent. Mm. There's so much more he could have done, and it's a tragedy that he passed the way he did in such horrific circumstances, and the fact that it was friends of his that discovered that is equally as fucking horrible. I I don't want to get too much into the particulars, but the the company who made the the car, you make sure that shit like that can't occur with the gearbox? We should just say, for any listeners who are unaware, Anton Yelchin was very tragically um, pinned against his 
the gate of his house after the brakes on his car failed, rolled downhill and pinned him to the gate and killed him. Um, it, well, it wasn't even specifically an issue with the brakes. It was an issue with the, the gearbox that sometimes doesn't register that it's in park. Yes. And uh, doesn't register the handbrake. It's like, how does a car get out there? Human suck, Holly. When, human fallibility. But it's like, it's not a video game that can have a day one Yes, patch. but... It, it was a situation where, even though this had happened in cases, it wasn't hap- It wasn't like that. every one of this car was doing. That. I get that, but it's a fucked up situation. Yes, it, there was a recall. There was a recall of the car, and the Elton family sued the manufacturers, and they ended up settling out of court. Like ever since I started driving, I've like you don't realize how much danger you yourself are in, and how much danger other people are in. And you don't get that full realization until you're driving yourself. Yeah. And it's just, when John told me that story, it just struck me as oh, so fucking tragic. Yeah. And he's doing such a good job here as Porter. The way that the character is written wouldn't work as well if such a talented young actor wasn't playing him, because he plays him as a depressed person who is trying to hide all of that when he's interacting with other people. He's keeping them at a distance the way his dad is. Well, not only that, what he's doing with the writing other people's essays is speaking through others. Yeah. Which is not terribly disconnected from this whole beaver thing. Oh, they, it's obviously yeah, a- they try and try and draw that um, a whole lot. Even with the Jennifer Lawrence character, you find out that she is hiding all of this trauma like that's not something that you see and that's sort of tying into this idea of you know that that mental health issues are not something you can see they're not a broken leg they're not a yeah they're not a uh, they're not a beaver exactly and so the jennifer lawrence plotline character arc sort of represents that in my view it represents the idea of oh but she seems so happy she seems like she's got everything you leader know, of the cheer squad. She's the leader of the cheer squad. She's a valedictorian. She's Jennifer Lawrence. Actually, no, there's like real issues that she's trying to contend with. Yeah, and well, it's all that sort of stuff that makes that part of the movie the most successful. Yeah. Mm. That's the pit that actually gets it. Yes, because the stuff that's going on with Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster is undercut first by the fact that Gibson's character is completely undermined by the competition between comedy and drama whereas the mm. foster character just doesn't really exist it is just jodie foster and whereas the jennifer lawrence character actually has agency and a point of view that is expressed and you know is assertive and exists within the story as a three-dimensional creation mm. and so does porter yeah um interesting that they give porter the younger brother when it doesn't really do much. Like, if, well, any, if anything, it just sort of raises the specter of this happening again with him. Yeah, I I think it that the the function, and it is simply a function of the younger brother, is to basically ingratiate ourselves with the beaver. Yeah, and I suppose to inspire the inspire the woodcutting thing. Even though, like, why do we need that at all? Why do we? Why do okay? That's a good point that I hadn't really even thought about. Why do we keep cutting away to watch the Beaver run this toy company? <laughs> See, it's funny because any reasonable person, the moment the Beaver's like, "You guys, 
You do all the jobs that you were hired to do, and then goes off to do whatever. Everyone should have turned to each other and been like, welfare check? Yeah, I <laughs> think like, so. Like this they, is a- they have... They have the thing where when he comes in with the beaver, um, there's like one guy on the floor and he makes the guy's like, oh, God, Walter's brought a friend. And then Cherry Jones, poor Cherry Jones, who I love, and he's like, scratch that. Jodie Foster doesn't have the most thankless role in this movie. Cherry Jones does. But she turns <laughs> around to this guy and says... Uh, I don't think that's appropriate. I think that Walter's earned the right for us to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm sitting there thinking, lady, he just walked in with a beaver puppet on his hand. And that company was already (laughs) going down the ship. Yeah. Like... But he hasn't heard anything. There are are limits here. And the way that that all... Imagine being someone who has stock in this company if it's publicly traded. You see this logo on the news, I'd be like, I'm out. Partially vested, well, I don't care. I'm gone. Then there's this in- there's this interview that Beaver does with Matt Lauer. <laughs> oh my god! They're like the hits keep coming. My goodness. Yeah, yeah Matt Which Lauer like- shows up and Harley was like, Is that Matt Lauer? And I was like, Oh fuck, it's Matt Lauer. <laughs> it's like shit a brick. It's like, perhaps let's not have our uh big old beaver discussion going sometimes. You just need to not do therapy discussion <laughs> when it's in an interview with Matt Lauer. That is what the beaver is saying. The beaver is literally saying, don't do therapy. No, don't that, talk to people. because he wants more people <laughs> to, to become beavers. Hand- he wants more people to get hand puppets. This is his plan. That's the well, other absurd... He's taken over this okay. man's mind <laughs> That's to create the- a puppet empire. That's the other absurd direction it could have gone. It could have become like a cult. The Waldo movement... Waldo moment from I, I Black Mirror. I think it's Mirror. got more to do with Little Shop of Horrors that this thing is masquerading as one thing, but it's actually like an alien from outer space or some kind of bullshit like, wackadoo it, crap like that. It could have gone in such an absurd direction. But it could have gone. It could have become like a weird cult-like thing where the Beaver could have become like Andrew Tate and exactly like, radicalizing all of, of these young people. That's what I was thinking. People. Like. Walter gets radicalized, and the beaver is just a the explosion of all of the negative things that this guy is thinking about. Well, and it that's becomes the thing. falling down by way of Fight Club. Like the beaver is explicitly harmful. Mm. Like he's uh, manipulative. He's verbally abusive to Walter. Well, not only that, he's emotionally abusive. Exactly. Like he says, "I'm the only one you need." And let's just say the the vocal work from Gibson. With the accent, it's a very overdone accent, but it's consistent. It's good. It's, good. it's consistent. It's not, is it overdone? Because it just sounds like Ray Winstone. Like, can you call <laughs> it overdone if it's actually just a real accent? I guess, but it's like, consistent. It's, it's just not, a Cockney accent. Like, they they exist. It's not like they walk among into us. Basil Brush. It hasn't turned into fucking. But even Steve Basil Coogan. Brush just sounds like Boris Johnson. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, fair enough. But it's not like the beavers going, hello, governor, or what we have here, or you tried to off yourself. I can help with that. But, like, it's consistent. Yeah. And and I really appreciate I mean, consistency. it sounds good. You'd like to hear the beaver talk. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if it was another person doing the voice for the beaver, mm. but it's not. It, it's Gibson. Yeah. Well, that, that interview scene that you're talking about, that's also, it's like this weird thing that's, it's never even zipped up at the end. It's never taken care of. But this idea that he's just like, 
oh, my family's such a drag. I wish I didn't have my wife and my kids and that stuff. Like, I'm just going <laughs> to read it to you. We reach a point where in order to go on, we have to wipe the slate clean. We start to see ourselves as a box that we're trapped inside. And no matter how we try and escape, self-help, therapy, drugs, we just sink further and further down. The only way to truly break out of the box is to get rid of it altogether. I mean, you built it in the first place. If the people around you are breaking your spirit, who needs them? Your wife who pretends to love you, your son who can't even stand you. I mean, put them out of their misery. Starting over isn't crazy. Crazing is being miserable and walking around half asleep, numb, day after day after day. Crazy is pretending to be happy. Pretending that the way things are is the way they have to be for the rest of your bleeding life. All the potential, hope, all that joy, feeling, all that passion that life has sucked out of you. Reach out, grab hold of it, and snatch it back from that blood-sucking rabble. And at the end of the day, make America great again. <laughs> you tell me that that doesn't sound like the fucking manifesto of a spree shooter. <laughs> I mean, holy shit. That's like the greatest hits from the Unabomber. So- and... Like, not only this, but he's, like, he's doing this televised for his family to see. And his family are watching this, and they're like, the fuck? It's not only that, it's like, they're they're meant to be doing these interviews to sell toys. Yeah, like, I, okay, to start off with, I don't buy for a second that this beaver woodcutting thing becomes the cultural phenomenon that this movie thinks it would. No. Second of all, even if it did... That the, the, the guy who owns the toy company would be on national television in the mornings? Okay, maybe once they learn that he's got a beaver puppet that he always talks oh, to. Oh, yeah. You cannot walk past that. <laughs> yeah. It's incredibly new. Sure. But, like, also the fact that that whole rant about bloodsuckers and his how much he hates his wife and children does not prompt any kind of alarm among the general public. Mm. Oh, People people go out of their way to buy these wood carving yeah. things. It might be one of those circumstances where the the interview sells more of the kits because of how absurd it is. How ridiculous it is. What sort of a newsroom kind of thing where he goes Well no, but they already all, I'm fed up and I can't give a damn. They already say that they're flying off before that. Flying off mm. the shelves before that. It's like it's Christmas and it's not even July. Like it's it. They have that whole stretch of nonsense before he has that public. Mm, that's public true. Program. I just don't know how profitable a, a, a wood building kit could be. But well, just in general. Well, to think think about it, I suppose it doesn't create take much to manufacture. There's not many moving parts or anything. It's just a hunk of wood with that's some true. tools. You are and making a profit, and it's the least. And and obviously, it's not like actual wood carving tools. They're not going to hand those to children. There's a lot about the movie that just does not add. And look, well, I, oh. I don't buy also that what happens with Walter kills the uh, the sale of the beaver car. Of course not. Who gives a crap exactly. about what happens with the CEO of a toy company? I mean, the I, toy is a toy. I get that it's sort of there's a symbol that the beaver is sort of a symbol that's attached to him, but frankly, you can change that. Like you've got to have a little bit of uh, you've got to already be thinking that's. It's it's clear that this guy is not well, right? When yeah. he's already on there, you've got to already be knowing that this is not healthy. So yeah. that it this went guy's this way away from yeah 
that it went this way while tragic. It's not this like wake up and it's like, oh, the beaver was an unhealthy influence. <laughs> like no, it's completely predictable. But also, yeah. let's just point to some real life things. Like, okay, J.K. Rowling says tons of horrible shit, and Hogwarts Legacy will just go out and sell millions of copies. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't buy that the actions of the the creator would affect this in in that way. If in the the case it is selling very well to begin with, so and why not just like change it to like a puppy dog or something? Instead of a beaver. Problem solved. Exactly. That poor lady. I mean, holy shit. She is inheriting a very terrible situation. Can you imagine? I'm I'm a fan of looking at these kinds of movies and imagining the podcasts that would happen ten years after the fact. Can you imagine the podcast about this dude who is dealing with all of these horrible issues, ends up with a talking puppet... And ends up chopping his hand off, arm, arm off, with a bandsaw in his garage. Own garage. Okay, going back to the to the company, I think there's a level of manipulativeness on the company's part that they're enabling him. There's a there's enabling. There's taking advantage. Well, but it's also it's his company. Like that's the yeah, thing. I know I, that. It's I don't even think that it's publicly it's... held. Like it's it's mm. literally his company that he inherited from his father he even make like the beaver i should say makes that crack it's like and now i'm running it even though our vice president cherry jones is so much more more qualified and that's mm. and and cherry jones is just just does everything okay she can with that? she's to, okay with that yeah but she this she's just a nice know. person who is trying to do her work the whole situation felt like there should have been someone there at the company, if not at his home, looking after him. Well, yes, but, okay, we're getting into a thornier problem here that goes beyond what the beaver has the intellectual capacity to interrogate. But the, (laughs) the, the thing of it is, is that when adult people are in crisis like this, there's actually very little that you can actually do to get them help if they don't want it. Because we rightly prioritize an adult having freedom and liberty and control over their own body and actions. We mentioned it earlier that it takes it takes quite a lot in fact. Yes. It takes a hell of a lot for someone to be committed without the ability to just walk out of the facility, let alone Yeah, involuntarily be brought into the facility in the first place. Yeah. So if he owns the company, what are you gonna do? Yeah. He just he owns the company. He owns the building. He is the employer of all of these people. And at Mm. this point he could just be seen as an eccentric uh, he's handed out all of those, um, all of those things, so they all know that it's to do with his mental health. But definitely, by the time he's ranting about the blood sucking rabble on Good Morning America, I would say that you members of the board were having discussions after that. Yeah, they should have been having discussions before the moment he rocked up with a beaver on his hand. No, that it's a complicated thing. With that, imagine, imagine being a fly on the wall for that board from, meeting from their perspective. As far as they know, this is actually a legitimate psychiatric treatment that he's undergoing. Yeah, and that that it's helping. Yes, like it. That's they the don't thing. know how harmful it is it's working. become. Yeah. Like right up until the end, really, it's actually he's become more efficient at his job. The company is booming again. It's no longer nearing bankruptcy. Everyone's at that happy point, to work And at there. that point, they're not his friends at the company. They're his employees. Yeah, they don't have. They don't really have any of the perspective of his personal life. 
until that interview in which it becomes pretty explicit that this is not helping. And then Sherry Jones gets that moment where he's like, you know, there is no puppet. The beaver is real. And you get that sort of like reaction from her and then it cuts away. But, um... <laughs> yeah, that that cut kind of implies, <laughs> oh, this is the beginning of his massacre kind of deal. Well, like, it, it's cut to... Like the beaver, the hmm. beaver is the one who's real. And no one can know. <laughs> it's cut. It's cut from an extended scene, which is on the the disc. That that scene originally goes on longer, where Cherry Jones has that reaction, but then starts laughing because she thinks it a joke. Thinks it's a joke. The beaver gets all pissy, and mm. it gets to the point where like beaver's like shouting at her. Um, oh, go on, try and pull me off Walter's hand. Then pull me off the, Walter's hand. Don't be a pussy. Why? Why can't you do it? Go on. And it actually ends with like you know. Her falling down and on the floor of his office, and him yelling at her, and it's just too much. It's too much. Yeah, it completely yeah. destroys any sympathy we might have for Walter, and it 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 makes that situation far too dangerous for them there to be no immediate outcome from it. Mm, yeah, it's just confused priorities in this movie. But I think we are reaching the end of our conversation here. So why don't we now move on to say who we would cast in the Muppet version of this movie. And I will say that I I have a pitch here, okay? Yep. None of them, they're all Muppets. They are all Muppets. And the guy, the one that is uh, Walter instead has a live action Mel Gibson instead of a puppet. I like that. I like that, yes. (laughs) Everyone's a puppet it, except the beaver. You call it the Mel. <laughs> man. Yeah. The man. The man. I like that. So I've asked ChatGPT what its thoughts on this topic are. Kermit the Frog is Walter Black. That's where I was going. Yep. We should have. We should say so we're not influenced, I feel like. Fair enough. Yep. See, I'm going, I think it's kind of obvious it's Kermit. Um, yeah. As Walter, Miss Piggy as the Jodie Foster character. You have mm-hmm. the I forget forget even what his name is, the little little frog. Um yeah. and as the kid. As, as the little kid. As the little kid. Oh no, as as um Anton Elson's character. Oh. And then yeah, the really little one. Just some a smaller frog. Just <laughs> some little uh like little piglet or something, I don't know. Um Fair enough. I don't know, you probably get Janice or something for the or, or an entirely brand new Muppet for the Jennifer Lawrence character. Yeah. Um, and then um, for the Cherry Jones character, it's Scooter. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I agree with all of those choices. But what it has here is a severe misunderstanding of the film. <laughs> Kermit the Frog is Walter Black. The compassionate and level-headed leader. Just like <laughs> Walter's character in the movie. Oh. Miss Piggy as Meredith Black, strong-willed and passionate, adding a touch of humour and drama as Walter's wife. Fozzie Bear as Porter Black. Fozzie's humour and warmth would make a great fit for Walter's son, providing comedic relief and emotional depth. Gonzo as Nora. Gonzo's quirky and adventurous nature would make him a fun and eccentric love interest for Walter. <laughs> Rolf the dog as Henry Black. Rolf's kindness and gentleness would suit Walter's younger son, bringing heartwarming moments to the role. That one is the only one that's even slightly fitting. Animal, as the beaver puppet. Animal's wild and unpredictable nature aligns with the unpredictable behavior of the beaver puppet in the film. Walter! Walter! 
And I've also asked it, okay, try it with the cast of Sesame Street. Big Bird as Walter Black. Fair. Big Bird's gentle and caring nature would be a perfect fit for the character of Walter. We need to stop there. It just doesn't get it. It just doesn't understand. Rosita as Meredith. Rosita's vibrant personality and strong presence make her an excellent choice to play Walter's wife. Okay, but, like, we can stop there. It 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 clearly doesn't understand. Oh, but I tried it as Pik- as Pokemon as well. No, that's fine. <laughs> that's not Pikachu what this- as That Walter. is not what this Hold segment on. is. Hold on. Pikachu as Walter. <laughs> Pikachu's iconic cuteness and determination <laughs> would make him a lovable and charismatic Walter. That is an utter mischaracterization of the movie. <laughs> Togepi as Porter. Togepi's innocent and adorable nature could fit w- well with the role of Walter's son, Porter. I know we all love Anton Yelchin, but innocent and adorable? The character is not. as Meredith. Evie as Nora. Pichu as Henry. That, that works. And Meowth as the beaver puppet. Okay, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, I can see that, actually. I can see that last one. And I've got some other ones, but I will tell them to you when we are not recording. All right, now why don't we move on to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie is Anton Yelchin. Um, I think he brings sort of a genuineness of emotion and a genuineness of uh, commitment and spirit to the role. It is really because of him that the parts of the movie that do work do. Uh, He does really good work with Jennifer Lawrence. He brings a pathos that the rest of the movie is sorely lacking. Um, And really, it is just another reminder of what was lost uh, in the, the loss of Anton Yelchin. Um, in terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I've already said it. It's the scene where he cuts his arm off because it's the one movie where it's the one part of the movie where it actually reaches its apotheosis. It becomes the thing that it wanted to be from beginning to end. But that's the only scene that it does it in. It's uh, it's a brief glimpse of a movie that has a better understanding of itself, more of a spine, more of a confidence, um, and so I've I've got it's the entire reason to make the movie. That's the entire pitch, frankly, of this movie is to be the puppet and, and he he cuts his arm off. Like, I mean, not to be reductive about it, but that's the emotional wallop, or it should be, yeah. of the entire film. Um, it should be the moment where the the darkness of and the real tragedy of the situation comes in to completely cut through the comedy. But such is such is this movie's failings that uh, all it ends up being is a standout moment in what is otherwise a, a fairly unsuccessful film. In terms of who I would recast with John Lithgow, of course it must be Walter. Um, there is No doubt. It has to be. There is, for starters, no one else to cast him as. Um, <laughs> unless you're going <laughs> to cast him as Porter. But it's it's a role that suits him. He would, yeah. I think, be able to actually bridge the... Um, the comedy of the situation with the emotional pathos better than Gibson does. Because while Gibson, I think, is very strong as the beaver, when he's actually asked to play the vulnerability of Walter without the beaver, especially in that dinner scene, I don't think he quite gets there. And I think that John Lithgow would be able to bring that softness, that vulnerability, that 
Gibson can't manage. And he so, fits as the CEO of a toy company. He does. Uh, in fact, I believe he has played one before in Santa Claus the movie. Um, <laughs> he was an asshole leader of that co- toy company in that one. Yeah. What if this movie was just a sequel to that movie, a spin-off of that character? Oh, that <laughs> it, changes it, it everything. makes the first movie ring differently. <laughs> it changes everything. Um, um, but yes, that those are my picks. Uh, for me... I have to say, Anton Yelchin is my MVP here. He is electric. He has he had such talent, and his scenes are the ones that work the best. And he has outstanding chemistry with Lawrence. And if it were an actor less dedicated and less talented, he would have Portal would have been a nothing character. Yeah. But Yelchin had such an ability to draw the eye. He had such an ability to play vulnerable characters, and. It all came down to his empathy as a performer. He was able to find that place and dip into it. And it it's just such a goddamn shame what happened to him. My favorite scene of sequence is the same as Lawson's. Uh, especially the use of exit music for a film. One, love the song. Mm. <laughs> I, I've mentioned how much I adore the song before in our uh, Romeo and Juliet episode all the way back. But the use of it here is really funny in a, in that really dark way. It's the kind of song you'd expect Yeah. in a moment like that. It's almost like, it's the obvious choice, and that's what makes it so humorous. Yeah. But it's also like a sad, dark song. Yeah. For a sad, dark moment, and that like adds to the absurdity of it, in a way. That's the culmination of the idea, the cutting off the arm. That is what its natural logical conclusion was going to be that is the only way it was going to go and for the role of walter slash beaver it's got to be john lithgow yeah uh one it's the only role for him and two it's a role perfectly suited to him ventriloquist john lithgow i'm sure that's something we're all excited to see uh when that movie comes out whenever it does yes uh but here he can play the tragedy he can play the humor he can find that line that gibson simply could not do he can do that voice he can do the voice he's he can get as animated as he'd have to get for that and obviously it's replacing mel gibson <laughs> it's giving jodie foster a break from her encounters <laughs> with giving terrible foster men a break yeah uh but yeah no like it's a role that lithgow is perfectly suited for i'm surprised that he wasn't actually in the discussion to begin with. I mean, he was probably busy. Mm. I'll give my MVP to Anton Yelchin. Again, he passed on too soon. There was so much more he could have done, and it's a tragedy for his family and for cinema as a whole. He plays Porter with such a warmth. Not a warmth, but a lack of warmth. He plays him with such a vulnerability and a sadness that he is the character who I was watching throughout the film. It He's the one who I felt like I could understand the most. He's the most well-written character. And he's the one where I think a lot of the pathos for me came from. For my favorite scene or sequence, again, it's that moment, all from, you know, the beaver attacking uh, Walter, all the way to Walter, you know, making a little coffin and chopping off his own head. That's a thing we didn't mention. The fact that he constructs this tiny little coffin and the beaver seems none the wiser until <laughs> Walter's like, 
It's time you die now. It could just be a box. No, it's in the shape of a coffin. It's in the shape of a coffin. (coughs) That adds to the humor. That's excellent. And it's the only time this movie comes close to being what it should have been, which was a slightly more acerbic, but ultimately well-meaning film about this man's deterioration. And on that same token, I think Lithgow could find that line. I think Lithgow could play that character with the gentleness and just the image of it. The fact that it's Lithgow, Mm. the fact that it is this gentle-featured man, that he isn't this guy who's been an action star in the past. He He hasn't been Mad Max. He's been the dad from Harry and the Hendersons. He's John Lithgow. It plays into this sense of this really is like a guy who is so soft. And Gibson does have a harsh vibe. He has a harsh vibe about him, even when he's playing a vulnerable character. Mm. And I think it works so well if you get John Lithgow with the puppy dog eyes that he can do in that character, that kicked dog energy that he can do. Because that's what Walter is. He's a kicked dog. Mm. Not due to just other people, but due to brain chemistry that he's just this ill man so i think lithgow could do that well and on the opposite end of the spectrum the beaver there's the humor inherent of lithgow with a beaver puppet and having him do that voice and yeah it scratches that itch of john lithgow professional showman singer dancer actor ventriloquist and it scratches that itch in a way that I hope for that itch to be scratched when that uh, murder mystery movie comes out. Uh, not murder mystery, slasher film comes out, uh, hopefully soon, fingers crossed. So well, yeah, he John Lithgow can't, can't do anything Walter at the moment because he's on strike. Mm. Well, yes, fair enough. Well, now we're going to put it to a vote. I can sort of anticipate what we're going to go with this one, but we'll do it. Anyway, Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first, whether or not you are pro or anti, or just ambivalent towards the beaver? Look, clearly I'm not pro. Like, I, I, none of us are going to be pro. Whether I'm anti or not, I'm, I'm closer to anti than I was when I started record this episode. Mm. I can't quite get there, though. I mean, it's, it's, it's just not... When I consider the ones we've been anti before, my soul to take in the happening... This does not exist alongside those movies. No. So, those movies uh, were abject failures. Yes, and this isn't. This movie is a failure, but a failure of ambition. Um, it has parts of it that work, and that keeps me from throwing down the anti-hammer. So uh, I'm going to just say apathetic, really. Yeah, for me, I'm apathetic too. I'm, I'm a little bit further from anti than you are, Lawson. I... I can tell I probably enjoyed this a little bit more than you did, but I do agree. It Its ambition is not reached. Its intent is not fulfilled. It is less than the sum of its parts. It, it's, it's Foster Lawrence, even Mel Gibson. He was, he's a talented actor, yeah. we can say as much. And Yelchin. Like, these are really, really great performers, but... And a really great premise, let's be fair. Yeah. But it doesn't end up being really what it should be. It's not what that lying-ass trailer suggests, and it's not nearly as absurd and dark as it could have been, a la a Martin McDonough script or The Voices. It- Can you imagine Martin McDonough getting this exact prompt? Mm. That movie 
would rock. Mm. Yeah, it it doesn't know what it wants to be. It's going through an identity crisis right in front of us, which is kind of uh, ultimately fitting. <laughs> so uh, ambivalent from me. And I, I think you hit it right on the head. It's less than the sum of its parts. It has all of the ingredients that are set out in front of us, but the ratios are wrong. Mm-hmm. It's too dramatic for the funny moments to really land. It doesn't have the correct mix. You've got talented performers, Gibson, Lawrence, Foster, Yelchin, and you've got a killer prompt of depressed man uses a, you know, stuffed beaver to work through his issues. You can think of like 10 movies just going off of that one Mm. idea. It's an idea that is rife for the picking. Like, so many things could be done with it. This is the least interesting and the least expressive of the eventualities here. Uh, I think it needed to stay in the oven for a bit more. But at that same token, it does have great ingredients in it. It's still edible. It's just not a five-course meal. It's got all the nutrients, but you're not going to write home about it. Yep, so... There you have it, we are not a pro the beaver podcast. So, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Counter, which one of myself on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode specific feedback and moving recommendations. I'm not calling it X, no matter how much they want me to. Uh, You can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind on certain podcast apps, you're commenting on the show on the whole and on others it's for specific episodes if you are commenting on the show on the whole and you have a specific uh comment just cite the episode you're referring to it just lets us know what to address what to answer that sort of thing but please do like rate comment and subscribe uh an ill-tempered beaver exists in this film voiced by mel gibson an ill-tempered beaver voiced by mel gibson also exists within the future he is known to run around the mega cities traveling across the globe, in fact, and shouting put-downs towards people. Some suggest that it is the actual consciousness of Mel Gibson given animatronic form. Others suggest a darker hand at work. So um, I've got a question about these mega cities. if you'll ask yep. me to, if you'll allow me to inquire. So what is the sort of nature of the wasteland, as you call it, outside the walls of the megacities? Well, I guess then the question is more about the wasteland. Is it more of a desert kind of apocalypse, Uh, or is it more like just empty, desolate, and there's still, like, vegetation and ruins, but the people live in the cities? Uh, Wasteland is more like a cultural moniker at this point. It's not like that they are actually wastelands. It is that uh, there are very rare pockets of human civilization out there, and it's simply... simply, uh, like a moniker given to okay. outside of the mega cities. Okay, so it's less of a Mad Max, uh, like a more like a Fallout like Four hardwire scenario. It's more like a Fallout Four without the radiation. What have we got ahead of us for our next episode? Uh, well, our next episode is going to be one that I'm going to need to confirm with you that you can get a hold of, um, okay. because I need you to confirm with me that. It, the internet is not lying when it tells me that The Tunnel, the 2011 horror movie, is accessible via American Tubi. You'd think an Australian movie would be on an Australian service, but... That's what we're doing next week. 
Any Australian listeners, good luck to you, but Just Watch <laughs> does not have the tunnel listed as anywhere, <laughs> streaming anywhere in Australia. Uh, so join us next week for when we discuss the tunnel. Till then, I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Sean Lewis, the Beaver.